put them under pressure. The game is about being effective, being aggressive, winning the ball, getting on with the play. We'll put them under pressure. Hello and welcome back to the second half of our Euros preview uh, and I'm afraid that this will take slightly longer than 45 minutes to get through. Uh, <laughs> in, in the first half we looked at group A, B and C and so naturally as things progress we shall be looking now at group D this and guy, to start this, us this off. Kind of, Mark, first off, you know, it's, it's episode two, you, you should be reintroducing us, like it's the top of the show. Every podcast is someone's first podcast. The this Stanley is, this, this proverb. Disappointing, indeed, indeed. Fine. You, you've started off poorly, Mark. Fine then. I don't want to I, I say null point. No, but no, I'm gonna. no. No, no, fine. Okay. You can tell the teacher's like coming that. out and him, the criticism yeah. right here. Yeah, Dave finished the last podcast. Mr. Ryan is here now. So with me to get to endure through this second half, I have with me, <laughs> once again, the esteemed co-host of Link to the Cast, Dave Ryan. Why, Mark, thank you for that completely unsolicited, wonderful introduction. <laughs> <laughs> and with us again from across the pond is the ever-fabulous Jack Lazell. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> all right marty um i just want to point out something early on from the day and that was sitting down on the couch beside mark in this house and mark turning and saying this podcast tonight is gonna last no more than 90 minutes <laughs> and, yeah <laughs> and i looked at him and eventually he went to two hours and even that now is looking absolutely farcical yeah it has to be said um yeah it's well look mark it's a game of two halves you know uh, I'm over the moon to be part of it, to be honest with you. I mean, it, it looked like a potential <laughs> banana skin getting through the first half, but uh, me and the boys, you know, we're playing for the fans and we made it here. I was, I, con- I, was, I was confident in my prediction of this being a very long show because uh, possibly unbeknownst to Mark, when I rang up uh, young Jack for our Metal Gear Solid 5 mini podcast that we did, we spoke for about two and a half hours before we even recorded anything. Oh, Dave, I'm not surprised by this. There were times where me and Jack would speak on the phone for five hours, and at least four hours of that were dead silence, and we were both playing SSX3 or whatever else to concentrate on that to even remember that there was a phone conversation going on. <laughs> Metro City, man. I absolutely smashed it. One minute and 37 seconds, any video game nerds. If you can beat that on SSX3 Metro City, send me your answers on a postcard. Group D and <laughs> Croatia are here. Just no sell my Metro City time. You yeah, son. pretty much. Son of a bitch. Croatia are here uh, with 20 points, even though they were uh, docked one point for being a wee bit racist. And by that, I mean their fans. Uh, we don't need to go into that. But yeah, they finished second in their group behind Italy. Uh, this is their fifth attempt at winning the European Championships. Uh, they had a bit of a disappointing World Cup campaign in 2014. Uh, they managed to eke out one victory, but 
other than that i don't have high hopes for croatia uh, they did smash t- uh, San Marino 10-0, but I'm pretty sure between the three of us, we could probably do that as well. Uh, what do we think of Croatia's chances in this tournament? Um, I think, well, firstly, I think this is one of the teams where they're not one of the headline-making teams, but of the kind of the B or C tier teams, these are the. Uh, this is one of the squads where a lot of casual football fans are going to be familiar with a lot of the names here. Like, it, it, for for one, Dario Serna somehow still kicking around uh, the Croatian national team is sensational. I love it. Pretty um, sure he's lining up alongside Davor Suka at some I, stage, Yeah, he? I believe so. Um, this uh, Croatian team, I think the story of this Croatian team is a, a potentially lethal, at least in terms of their creativity, uh, midfield four uh, that you could be dealing with here, which I, I would argue might rival most midfield fours in the entire tournament, and that's uh, Ivan Perisic, Matteo Kovacic, Luka Modric, and Ivan Rakitic, um, which is a midfield four I would not mind having at my club, uh, for sure. Um, and you've also got the a man who kind of was a guy who uh, burst onto the scene relatively late in his career, um, in leading the line up front, and that's Mario Mandzukic. Um, who has 21 goals in his 65 appearances for Croatia, who is probably the, the focal point uh, up front for them. But I do think uh, Croatia, it, it, it all centres around their midfield, which I think, looking back uh, in my own memory, uh, as long as I've been watching Croatia at major tournaments, that has been their story, that it is their, their midfield where everything is going to be radiating from. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I love... Luka Modric he is an unbelievable footballer and he he's he kind of reminds me of um a sort of Paul Scholes type character in that he's very no nonsense he's very low maintenance he doesn't do an awful lot of press you're not going to see a lot of stories out there about Luka Modric at first he was at Real Madrid and the fans were like you know who is this guy and what's he doing and because of his very low profile and because they're used to having the sort of Galactico type characters I think Luka Modric was such an understated presence in the midfield that a lot of fans were thinking to themselves "Mm, I'm not having this guy and then they just watched him play and just watch him acclimatize to that midfield and now he is one of the key players in one of the best teams in Europe who have won the Champions League two out of the last three years Ivan Rakitic at Barcelona has won the championship in that other year. Uh, and there you go. If you've got two absolute diamonds in midfields of Real Madrid and Barcelona, then uh, that's, you, that's you right there. You're set. And you've got Perisic, who is a pretty formidable presence and uh, is a very good player for an inter-team, who, by the way, I, I think are very much on the way back to being a power again in Europe. I mean, if you look at um, Sevilla just winning the Europa League and... Eva Benega, who's one of their better midfielders, decided to walk away from that Sevilla team to go and play for Inter next season. Uh, and Bobby Mancini back in there as manager. That just goes to show how they're going. And I think this is a pretty... You would say they're always kind of Croatia are looked at as that dark horse or whatever. But there's an insane amount of potential uh, and creative influence in this midfield. So... That is obviously going to be where the crux of their power is. Mandzukic has had a fairly average season at Juve. Whenever I saw him play, I I don't think he fully kind of 
answers the promise that we we saw and i think he had a great season for atletico um very difficult to step in and replace diego costa who's just been an absolute monster for them the previous season um and uve were, were needing a striker and he tend to start games but um morata even off the bench has made a little bit more of an impact than him so perhaps he's gonna have uh one or two things to prove at this tournament manzukic and whether he's putting himself back in the shop window um, but then, you know, with Uwe losing Morata potentially, then this guy might be making a case to say, Juve, keep faith in me. So there's guys here with championship pedigree and there's guys here with things to prove. And there's Vedran Chorluka, who uh, is a, a veteran of the Croatian national team and I know was a favourite of a lot of Spurs fans over there for the casual fans in, in this team, so... Um, just a, a couple of follow-ups there. Like, if you want uh, kind of good evidence of Luka Modric's pedigree, um, to to kind of follow up on a couple of points Jack said, like the 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 Paul Scholes comparison is very apt. Um, because in a, this is all coming from the Guardian, by the way. The um, a recent marker profile of him said that uh, Luka is a homely family guy. Uh, you will never see him in a nightclub. He is not interested. He likes to go to the zoo and never makes controversial remarks. Very much like a Paul Scholes, like an understated guy who lets his football do the talking. But the two kind of stamps, if you uh, stamps of quality that are uh, evident here in this little brief profile that they have of him, um, Johan Cruyff once called him a midfielder of enormous quality, but he needs freedom to express himself. I believe Cruyff compared him to himself in many ways. Uh, when, wow, which is like you want to talk about shoes to fill. Uh, the the shoes of the recently uh, tragically departed Johan Cruyff are quite uh, something else. Uh, then there's also the fact that uh, obviously Real Madrid put quite a bit of value on him because it's reported that his buyout clause from Real Madrid is three hundred and eighty-seven million pounds sterling good lord um but the other thing is it I want... 387 million pounds and raheem sterling that yeah to get in there um the other thing i want to say is before i hand over to mark to either add something on or move on to the next team is um matthew kovacic is a player that i really 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 like and I think he is a player that every time I've seen him, like when I saw him back at Inter, because I always had a soft spot for Inter, before he went to Real Madrid at Inter, like he got the nickname in Italy of Il Professore um, for being such a dynamic, creative force on his day. And I think if he can keep his head on straight, if he can find a place in that Real Madrid team or even take, and it is an enormous thing to do uh, to, like... Uh, try and leave Madrid either to try and become a key midfielder somewhere else if Madrid are just determined that he's not going to have a place in that midfield Um, I think he's a guy with potential to become one of the best if not the best midfield player in the world he is only 22 years old and he feels like he's been around for a while though yeah well like he broke on he broke on he broke onto the scene about 19 i'd say and he got that nickname for inter at the age of about 22 or 20 um so like he's a guy who he's not even close to his peak yet but the important thing for him at this point in his career is to be playing every week somewhere and it's going to be hard for some players to say, well, maybe I need to leave Real Madrid to do that. But some players who have come in on big promise in Real Madrid and needed to go elsewhere to kind of actually play football have done quite well for themselves. Like, let's not forget the the year where Real Madrid made 
what I think is a monumentally stupid decision to, in one summer, or very close to each other anyway, sell both Rob N and Snyder, who both became the jewel in the crown of the two teams that made it to the Champions League final the following year. Um, Robin may be the, and I'm not saying he's the best by any means, because he certainly isn't, but he may be the most gifted player I've ever seen wear a Chelsea shirt. Yeah, and I would say, like, speaking of the, the two players that got sold that time, I, I still think, and I said in the first part that I love him so much, that Wesley Snyder is the most naturally gifted playmaker of his generation, I think. I mean, yeah. If, if you look at Inter's run to the Champions League in 2010, he was absolutely pivotal. Yeah, There and, was nobody in Europe who was better than him at that stage. And I very much think that Matteo Kovacic is a guy who has all the tools who has the potential to find himself in the Wesley Snyder centerpiece role in some team somewhere. It's, at this point, unlikely to be Real Madrid. Um, and that's a shame. Um, I think maybe he took the money, or not the money, well, took the chance to go to Real Madrid. Taking the money sounds kind of cynical. As we the, all would, I think. Yeah, took the chance to go to Real Madrid, and maybe he was a little bit too young. Um, I think maybe he would have benefited from creating a bigger reputation so that he could kind of come in there in a kind of you're going to have to play me I'm that good sort of attitude um I think maybe he should have waited a couple more seasons at Inter but you know it's his choice um I I think he's a guy who if he's given the space and the time could absolutely light up this tournament um it's going to be hard to do that in a midfield with Rakitic and Modric probably already there uh but I really think uh, he is a sensational player. I mean, why would they even bother playing any wide players? Why not just... <laughs> why would they bother playing any other players? Just like, just, what, like 10 midfielders and... <laughs> yeah. And a, yeah, and a goalkeeper. Sounds good to me. That's kind of what Spain attempted to do when they won the last Euro, so... Yeah, 0-10-0. 0-10-0. Uh, I will say for Croatia, uh, having a look over their qualifying campaign, that they are one of the kind of highest scoring teams... Um, not that it says much when some of the teams in their group included Malta and Azerbaijan, but I yeah. do think in their group, uh, I, I think they're probably the, have the most potential for getting that second space. Yeah, I think. Uh, I, I think the thing is with that midfield, it is kind of nailed on that they are going to create a lot of chances, and the burden really rests on the like of the likes of Mandzukic to convert those chances. Because like with Modric in there, with Rakitic in there, with Kovacic in there, the ball is going to be put on his toe several times throughout the game in promising positions. So if Croatia crash out of the tournament, it's going to be because the forward line let them down and not the midfield. I have to say as well, I my prediction is that there will be one goal from Luka Modric in this tournament and it will be one of the top three goals scored in the tournament. Good show. It's a very good show indeed. Uh, moving on to the Czech Republic, the winners of the uh, 1976 uh, edition of the tournament. They're here for their ninth time. They were the winners of Group A, uh, beating out Iceland and Turkey for the top spot of 22 points. They had seven wins, one draw, and two losses. Uh, their last couple of games, they had a 6-0 win against Malta, a 2-1 win over the Russians, and yesterday they lost to South Korea, uh, two goals to one. 
what do we think of the Czech Republic? Um, I think the Czech Republic are a team who have kind of been um, on the, the, the downward trending since um, a very, very strong performance at Euro 2004 going all the way back. And uh, particularly from a top scorer, if not or, or near top scorer in that tournament, Marek Heinz, his brief moment in the, uh, in the sunshine as a Czech striker. But... Uh, this team has a couple of players that people will likely recognise, not least of whom uh, Thomas Rosicki, who I think is key to that team when he does play, but is kind of very much on the uh, in his autumn years uh, in terms of playing football. Uh, so may not feature throughout the whole tournament, especially given his uh, historic struggles with uh, fitness. You've got a couple of players in there, the likes of Peter Cech, who is going to be absolutely vital for them. Um, a couple of players who are kind of these guys who have come across uh, as people with a lot of potential who have never necessarily uh, delivered massively on that and I'm thinking particularly of the likes of uh, Geber Selassie here or uh, Cadillac even um, and I suppose as well uh, Nesid who was a mainstay for uh, a couple of years at Seska I believe and is now uh, yeah. shacked up at Bursaspor um, very much kind of what he reminds me of and now I've just hovered over it and the Guardian thinks so too so it's going to seem like I'm ripping them off but he's very much in the mould of a Jan Collar um, but I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that as the Guardian agrees with me so I'm, I'm taking that as a pat on the back but uh, he's a guy who is probably going to be their starting striker um, but I don't know if the Czechs overall are going to be up to much in this tournament to be honest there's not a lot of firepower in this team for me no. dave it's nesseed and then that's it really kind of yes um like if you look at the i mean lafata La i would say sparta Prague had a, a decent champions league this year uh and i think i saw maybe one or two games uh for sparta prague and the two games i saw uh lafata scored in both so you know, despite kind of getting on in years a little bit at this point, he's still a viable option up front. Um, and it would either be him or Nasid. But the thing that kind of worries me there is like Lafata is 34. Uh, Thomas Rosicki is 35. Petacek is, is 34. Kadlec, who's bound to start on the defense, is 31. If you look at the core of this team, maybe Pudo in the midfield, I think think he may be 30 as well but you look at the average age of this Czech team it's probably up there in terms of uh, all the other teams in the tournament because I think football seems to be going very much in the way of athleticism recently and and younger teams I they do look very slow um, and I, I think that's kind of bore through in the facts that they conceded 14 goals in the qualifying which is the most of any team qualified for this tournament so you know you've got Petacek in goal arguably uh, until Neuer came along the best goalkeeper of his generation uh, and he's picked the ball out of the back of the net quite a few times so he can't despite being a talismanic and iconic figure you know he can't solve their defensive issues and perhaps the lack of pace in the team to me is going to be a huge issue for the Czechs yeah uh, I have pretty much nothing to add to any of this so if you're ready I will I will move on to the Turks go for it okay so Turkey 
were third in their group but qualified uh, anyway uh, with 18 points. They had five wins, three draws, and two losses uh, for the Turks. This is their uh, fourth uh, attempt at winning the European Championships. And again, another team that I don't really have too much to kind of contribute to. Uh, they have won their last two games with one nil uh, victories apiece. Um, is there anything? I mean, they had only had 14 goals scored in the qualifying campaign. Uh, they seem to me like a team that are going to be pretty uh, kind of unremarkable for the most part. Um, Their manager, um, Fatih Terim, he is, I think, conservatively maybe five foot six, yet is one of the scariest looking men I've ever seen. Like his face, like just looking at him, the stern complexion that he has would be enough if I was a Turkish player to scare me into performing. So I think that could be a legitimate factor we might see here. Um, I think this Turkish squad, um, whenever I think Turkey, I always get kind of warm memories of that sensational Turkey performance in the World Cup in 2002 with the Imperial Rushdu, uh, the terrifying strikers uh, throughout the tournament with his uh, his war paint and his his excellence. But it's been a long, long time since then. Um, The story, I think, of Turkey are another one of these teams where... There's a lot of players who have a lot of potential here and have yet to really show it. Um, Yilmaz is a guy who is probably their main source of goals um, and is a guy who at some points in his career people thought was going to you know, kick on and be a guy who succeeds outside of uh, Turkey. And he has, but in Beijing, which is not necessarily where people would have thought at one point he would end up, but there you go. Um, the I think the key to the Turkish performance in this group and uh, however long they last at the tournament is based on three men in the midfield who I think again very much under that banner of lots of potential let's hope they show it and that's Nuri Shaheen uh, Arda Turan and a man who is making a name for himself at Bayern Leverkusen and that is Hakan Kalhanoglu Uh, I'm not sure if that's how I pronounce it but that is he is a guy who I've heard a lot of talk about at Leverkusen uh, as being kind of coveted by teams around Europe at the moment. Uh, and if those three can actually get it together and create some chances for Yilmaz, they could potentially cause a bit of trouble for some teams, although I would not put money on it. Yeah, I I look at the Turkish team and I can't... With the exception of Arda Turan... I can't see an awful lot here that excites me. At one stage, Burak Yilmaz was being so effective uh, up front for Galatasaray, particularly in the Champions League. He was even linked with a move to the Premier League and specifically to Chelsea um, because I think that Drogba had been putting in a lot of a good word about him. But since then, has has kind of faded a little bit. And as you say, had to go over to China and probably taken what is a legitimate dump truck full of money to go out there and play well he is now known as the king of beijing according to the guardian here um, the king of Be- it, it, they've actually turfed the the king of beijing title over to him then they have indeed he has taken on the mantle also it's worth saying that the guardian have reckoned that um this young man emre moore in the in midfield if he gets a look in uh might potentially uh 
put him further into the shop window. He's being looked at by United, City, Liverpool, and Arsenal. Um, wow, plays I for mean, North Island at North the moment. Land. Yeah, Northland. Um, he's only eighteen. Eighteen years old. It's a very it's a it's an interesting one for him though, like at eighteen years old to be making it into a major championship squad. I wonder if we'll see much of him. Um but that's that's pretty amazing. Like at the age of eighteen, uh and playing for a very obscure Danish team to be linked with those sort of guys. So it would be cool if if Fatty Terum does give him a few appearances. But yeah, th- there's certainly been better Turkish teams, but um they were in quite a, a difficult qualifying group and still managed to get the requisite amount of points despite finishing third to get them into the tournament. Yeah, so, I you know, we, I, I, they come, they're not to be underestimated. Yeah, but... I, I think the Turkish national team are very much like... Um kind of reminiscent of when English teams or any team tries to play a Turkish team in the Champions League is that they're great of creating this kind of oppressive atmosphere on the pitch that can make them at times very intimidating to play against. They can make it very, very difficult for you to play your football. And if they can do that, I, I, I'm i not saying they're going to top the group by any stretch of the imagination, but they might nick a point or two. Yeah, and, and ultimately they're in uh, the tournament at the expense of the Netherlands. Yeah. So, Although I think that might be a little bit more a reflection on the Netherlands uh, than it was on Turkey. Potentially. Uh, I'm quite a big fan of um, of Seljuk Inan as well. I think he's a good player. When Whenever I've seen Chelsea going off against Galatasaray, he's always impressed me. Finally, we have the Spanish the free time champions of this tournament uh, who have successfully rebounded after what <laughs> many would probably consider to be a pretty shambolic 2014 World Cup campaign. Uh, they won their group, uh, beating over Slovakia. They had 27 points with nine wins and one loss. And uh, they uh, have won their last two games, a free one win over Bosnia and uh, 6-1 win over South Korea, and they play Georgia tomorrow over this recording. Uh, the Spanish, it's been an interesting couple of years for them, uh, a somewhat kind of transitional period. Uh, what do we think of the Spanish? What do we think of their chances in the 2016 European Championships? I think following the World Cup, people are going to be very, very tempted to overlook Spain, and I think that's a fool's errand. I think this is a team that still very much has the potential up and down the pitch to get to the finals, if not win the tournament, if they play as well as they can play. But I do think this is certainly a much more uh, mortal side, a side that's capable of being wounded than uh, previous iterations of this squad that we've seen dominate uh, in years past. Uh, it's an embarrassment of riches uh, between Iker Casillas and the likely number one, David De Gea, who, and I'm not just saying this as a United fan, is arguably the best goalkeeper in the world. Um, it's, you know, it's it's real kind of uh, Sophie's choice. If you choice take between, Neuer out of that yeah, argument. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I was going to say. It's Sophie's choice, him, Neuer, or uh, Buffon. Uh, as best goalkeeper in the world for me. Look, let, let's be fair. There's a reason we just about managed to finish fifth. Well, this is the and... thing: is that like <laughs> you, you look at the difference between if those are the three arguments for best goalkeeper in the world: De Gea, uh, Neuer, and Buffon. You got to think the three of them that ha- that is most frequent of the three of them who is most frequently put to work in goals for his club, and it's Big Dave. Um, I 
am so very very thankful he stayed at United during the summer I am very very thankful that all the talk is now that thankfully because Madrid botched it so utterly horribly that he's become disenchanted by the idea of that move and may at least stay for the rest of this his United contract I can only hope he does because I don't think there is anybody we could possibly buy that could fill his shoes um, I am looking forward to him as a fan of his and as a guy who thinks he genuinely deserves it to see him as the number one for Spain and by the same token it is kind of sad to see Iker Casillas on the wane as he has been since his unceremonial uh, shuffling out at Real Madrid um, but this is a Spanish team that still has plenty of quality you're still talking about a centre half line of Gerard Piquet and Sergio Ramos and whereas I'm not as as high and this is not to say that I think he's a bad player by any stretch of the imagination I am not as high on Gerard Piquet as some people are um, I still think he is a very very good centre half and in partnership with Sergio Ramos that is as intimidating a centre half pairing as you are likely to find in this tournament you've also got uh, Jordi Alba Mark Bartra uh, Cesar Aspilicueta and Hector Bellerin in there Juan Fran of course who like you don't know at the age of 31 hopefully he is going to get a look in uh, at right back hopefully he is going to be there right back for the tournament um, although as the tournament wears on his age might come to show so he may kind of start to disappear from there from the, the start in 11 as the tournament goes on uh, the midfield is obviously where uh, Spain have shone in recent years and it's going to be interesting this might we don't know for sure this might be the last tournament we see Andres Iniesta at it's probably the last European Championships we'll see him at because he'll be 36 pushing 37 by the next European Championships so you could probably say that this will be his last European Championships if not his last major tournament you've got the likes of uh, I might leave uh, talk of uh, Cesc Fabregas to Jack when he takes up uh, considering a more personal view of that man's performances but the likes of Akoke who has been uh, quite something uh, at Atletico Madrid and a guy who uh, very much has been coveted by a lot of clubs around Europe Sergio Busquets who just has the most punchable face in world football um, <laughs> David Silva who is utterly ridiculously talented on his day and the idea that a guy who very much uh, was at one time the most promising attacking mid- young attacking midfielder in Europe Thiago Alcantara may not even get a look into this midfield is kind of um, it's testament to just how good the Spanish midfield is and then of course up front uh, you've got the likes of Pedro who I think came in uh, and didn't necessarily light the world on fire as some people thought he might at Chelsea Um, but he's you know he's a solid performer in the Spanish team and was a solid performer at Barcelona before he went to Chelsea and has showed up sometimes for Chelsea this year but I think uh, for the forward line the star man a man who is uh, almost certainly not going to be at the same club by the end of the summer as he was at the start of the summer. Uh, Alvaro Morata is the man to watch up front for uh, Spain, and this could be his tournament to really uh, add several million onto his price tag uh, at wherever he ends up. Yeah. Um, last time I did one of these, uh, I believe on the Dr. Keith Presents show on Figure 4 Wrestling, I made an 11 for Spain of players that they didn't have there just to illustrate even though their performance was pretty bad in the last World Cup how good a team and how many options they have and I've done the same thing this time and the team is no less good okay so in goal uh, the the one that straight away because of you know 
for the the personal reasons that didn't make it like the idea that one Mata does yeah. not get into this team is utterly fucking ridiculous to me. I love that man, and I know even though he left you, Jack, you still love him very much. I do. I would take him back. He's like that ex-girlfriend that, you know, like, it, things didn't really fall apart in a drastic fashion. They just kind of wound down, and, and, and you didn't really realize it at the time, but then you see her a couple of years later on the arm of another bloke, and you're like, I really miss you. And that's how I feel about one matter. But anyway, you're, you're, you're 11 that didn't make it. Okay, so in goal we have Sergio Asenjo, who I think is a very, very good goalkeeper and a viable mm-hmm. option there. At left back we have Juan Bernat of Bayern Munich, excellent. Uh, a centre half pairing of Inigo Martinez and Raúl Albiol, who's just I, had a pretty. I love Inigo Martinez. Yep, I think he's a great player, and Raúl Albiol has just had a very good season with Napoli. He has. At right back, injury this one, but Danny Carvajal. Oh um, yes. A midfield defensive two, because I've gone four two three one, as is the style these days, are Javi Martinez and Santi Cazorla. How good would that be, That's guys? Sensational. Uh, uh, I've got three in behind the striker. I've got Mr. Matter out on the left. Isco, which was just like... Yes. You forget I, that. You forget Isco, and unfortunately Isco. for him... <laughs> Isco is amazing and, and a very promising young Barcelona player and Alex Vidal out on the right-hand side. And who would I have gone for as the number one striker? A guy that's going to score your goals and quite possibly beat up half the opposition team before <laughs> they even get a chance. Oh, I wonder. is it Or or at very least wind them up to the point where they just aren't focusing on the game anymore. Yeah, Jack, I'm also I presume you're not going to mention Fabio. Uh, I'm looking Torres. for... Okay. Yeah, presumably it is not Torres. I'm looking for somebody, Jack, before you name him. Is this man a proper Class A troll? Because that's what I'm looking for in this position. I mean, he, he has trolling possibilities. Uh, he's a guy who every now and then someone sticks their finger in his eye or, <laughs> you know, just tries to wind him up in some sort of wacky, crazy way. But yeah, Diego Costa, the man, the myth, the legend, the guy who should be number nine for Brazil, but decided to be number nine for Spain and is currently sat at home. Um, that is a testament to the shambles of a season that he had to go along with the shambles of the season that Chelsea had. Uh, despite finding some form towards the end under the, the stewardship of Gus Hiddink, who I think just made him feel generally a little bit more loved, still wasn't enough for Diego to break into the eleven and, and Torres as well. I mean, he'd be my number one substitute. I mean, he had an electric last three months or so for yeah, Atletico Madrid and really started to look like the old uh, Torres again. But I, I've got to say... Um, there's just quality all over this. You, you've gone through the squad, and it, it's it's quite scary. It really is that a lot of these guys that are even in the squad probably aren't going to see any time on the pitch as well. I mean, pick your fullbacks from Azpilicueta, uh, Bellerin, Juan Fran, and uh, um, oh, sorry, lost it. Your pants. And Jordi Alba. Jordi Alba. <laughs> sorry, I I lost my Jordi Alba. Uh-huh. I, I, I'd already lined him up and he was at the top and I had not scrolled down. Yeah, but pick your, like, that's four amazing fullbacks. Pick your starting two from that. It could be any of them. Can I just at this point uh, just make a quick aside and just say the idea that in that uh, infamous 
Spurs Chelsea game that we will probably be referring to later on. Uh, just looking at the running order here, um, the idea that Dembele was such a bastard in that game that he turned Diego Costa babyface is incredible. <laughs> like I actually, as a human being, felt sympathy for Diego Costa. That is how shambolic that second half was. Yeah, they targeted him. Yeah, and I I'm shocked that Costa didn't really. Do you know what the, the thing that really irritates me about that though? This is massively tangential, and I will finish it very soon. Chelsea will find more than Spurs for failing Ridiculous. to control their players, and and Spurs were the ones who broke the record for yellow cards in a Premier League game in that game. Correct. Uh, like I will say, I, I'm not one to back up a team that features Diego Costa as being uh, well behaved or anything like that. But it was evident to anyone that was watching, regardless of who they supported, except for a certain strata of very deluded Spurs fans, uh, that Spurs absolutely lost their arses as soon as Chelsea <laughs> scored. They were gone. The rest of the season, as soon as that first Chelsea goal went in, they were gone and they never came back. And it got to the point where, like I said it to, to Mark, I was like, I really want Leicester to win the Premier League, but I'll be very sad for Spurs that they didn't. To the point where I was fucking thrilled that Leicester won the league and had utterly no sympathy for Spurs by the end of that season. Do you know what? I don't like Arsenal very much, and I do quite enjoy um, Wenger's... Um, what, what was it that Jose Mourinho said? Ah, ah specialism in failure. Um <laughs> But even I was kind of stoked to see Arsenal after that game. And look, you know, I'm around Spurs fans all the time. I have no issues with Spurs. But after that game, Dave, I haven't been legit heat angry at a football match for a very long time. But I was just about ready to throw every single one of my toys out of the pram if we didn't get a result out of that game because Spurs were just hideous on that night. Um, But yeah, we, we were fine more money than them. And it's allegedly, to bring it back on topic nicely, um, because of Juan Sesc Fabregas, who is sneaky the biggest bastard in football. Uh, and I say this with a smile on my face because there was a very infamous game between Manchester United and Arsenal at Old Trafford many moons ago uh, that actually resulted in, in a big punch-up in the tunnel. I believe it was the game where uh, your man Keown whacked Ruud van Nistelrooy in the back of the head Missing after... The what was probably one of only, possibly the only penalty that I ever saw Van Nistelrooy miss in a Manchester United shirt. I was going to say, it wasn't very often that Van Nistelrooy that close to a goal missed. Yeah, um, and obviously there was a big ruckus, uh, and, and apparently the ruckus stopped when a piece of pizza flew through the air and struck Alex Ferguson uh, about the mush. And then apparently, or, or I'd like to stylize it this way, slowly slipped down his face, which <laughs> turned redder and redder to the point where it was more glowing red than the sauce contained on that pizza. And that ended it all. That level of rage. And you know the man that threw that pizza? Sesc Fabregas. He is a, a very sneaky bastard that not many people notice. And I've appreciated it. I watch him wind people up. In, in games and he just has a little word in the ear there it's a little tap on the back of the ankles and i think that's fantastic because i don't think i've seen somebody be that much of a sneaky bastard since dennis wise in the midfield for chelsea but he was very much out of the closet as a bastard whereas fabregas is kind of in it and i quite like that um and i think he is going to be the man that spain looked to 
to provide that little bit of leadership. And I'm quite looking forward to see him in that leadership role. I mean, Casillas is captain in name, but I doubt he'll play. And I feel like Fabregas will probably be the captain on the pitch, uh, anchoring the midfield and distributing it. Um, and, and now we don't have um, one Jabi Alonso to be the man that pulls the strings at the base of the midfield and anymore. His, I'd and like his glorious to... beard. And his glory, just his glorious existence. The man was insanely handsome. Uh, like it's going to be Sesk, and I think Sesk is up to the task. And I think Spain, after what was an incredibly disappointing tournament last time, are, are going to find some form this time round. And I, I can't see them doing worse than the semi-finals. And and if they were to win it at the moment, the odds are eleven to two. And I'm looking at that, and even I'm thinking about opening the wallet and potentially ringing up Mark's current employers to uh, to get a bet on for Spain. <laughs> So the key thing uh, is really um, who finishes second behind Spain in this group. Yeah, um, I think it's Spain probably on nine points, then Croatia, then uh, probably Turkey, because I think the Czechs have the least about them. Um, I also would make a claim at this point that I think there's a possibility that Spain versus Croatia could be the best match of the group stages. Uh, you're talking about uh, a matchup of two of the most embarrassingly creative midfields in the whole tournament. The only issue I have with that statement, which I would fully agree with, is that it's the last game of the group stage. Well, and, and for my it, money, if, if they've I can bo- see if they've if they've both uh, dished out a couple of hammerings in the other game, it could be the game that decides who finishes top of the group. Yeah. It could be. It could be. So that would make it very interesting. Hmm. Looking forward to that one. And yeah, I agree with that order. I would maybe edge checks over Turkey, though. Um, possibly. But that's a kind of, you know, tit for tat, really, for me. Uh, I would probably... Yeah, I want to go with it. Um, I haven't seen enough of Turkey to kind of make any sort of statement on them, but I, I can't see either them or the Czechs kind of being out over Croatia. Uh, So, yeah, I I think we're all kind of pretty much in agreement there for Group D. Uh, So that moves us swiftly along to Group E. And we're going to start off with Belgium, uh, the kind of everyman dark horse team. Uh, Everyone was sort of kind of pegging them to uh, to do very well in the World Cup 2014. Uh, And then they got to the quarterfinals quarterfinals. And they lost out to eventual finalist Argentina. Uh, they had a very successful uh, 2016 Euro, excuse me, uh, European Championship qualifying campaign. Uh, they won seven games. They finished off with 23 points. Uh, it wasn't the most uh, sort of threatening group, really, with the likes of Andorra, Cyprus, and Israel. But you know, they beat the teams that were put in front of them. Uh, how do we feel about Belgium? Um, outrageous squad. Yeah, I think this is a squad where, like you said, they're the everyman dark horse team. Uh, If this squad could get on the same page and play to their potential, there are very few teams that could stop them getting to a semi-final or a final. 
but unfortunately so far they have not delivered on that enormous promise and you're talking about there's a couple of players in this team who, who are in very key positions who had had very lackluster seasons the ones I'm thinking about in particular aka is, Lukaku aka Benteke well I'm thinking like, Lukaku had a fantastic season yeah. in an awful Everton team yeah that's the thing he succeeded in spite of Everton but the people I'm thinking of I'm thinking of and I think uh, Jack could probably follow a bit more on this in his kind of look at the squad but I think Thibaut Courtois who is a guy who very much had the potential to be in the upper echelon of goalkeepers with um, the likes know, of De Gea and when Neuer. You were talking about De Gea and Neuer, and I was just thinking to myself, a year ago I would have thrown Courtois in there. Like yeah, he was like his glorious conquering yeah, hero that had, team that won the two title or two trophies last year but this year he's just been terrible he's had a very 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 poor season and you can say that some of that at least is down to that atmosphere at chelsea but again i'll leave you jack as the chelsea expert on the on the show to uh, talk more about that uh, i also <laughs> want to point out at this point um i am unsure how after this season as well that uh, there are still people who think Simon Mignolet is a very good goalkeeper because he's not. Um, I I have never rated him. I did not see the big deal about him. I think you want to talk about a guy who looks like he is just covered in flop sweat whenever a ball comes in high into the box <laughs> or low into the box or at an average height into the box. Uh, it's Simon Mignolet. I think Liverpool really misspent on that man. Um and has been at fault. Uh, he's been found out a fair bit for Liverpool. Um, the uh, the guys who I think are going to be the the centerpiece of uh, this team if they succeed is the the one two punch of centre defenders from uh, Spurs, and that's Alderweireld and Jan Vertonghen, provided they have suitably recovered from losing their collective arses at the end of the season. Um, they could be a very very uh, intimidating very very uh cohesive and strong center half pairing you know it's really weird for me to defend spurs fans but there were a lot of them shouting at the end of the season like no one's showing alderweireld any respect and i was like hang on a second they're making a good point alderweireld was amazing last year for spurs well part of what led to their decline was when it got to the point one or the other was it him that got injured it was him or yeah. Jan Vertonghen. One of them got Zimmer injured. Zimmer stepped and was, in and, yeah. and looked pretty decent. And we'll he, mention him when we he, come to Austria later. Yeah, he was all right. But the um, it was the kind of when that harmony in the centre-half pairing broke up for a little while that they started to wobble a bit more. Um, the midfield for um, Belgium is also a story of uh, people with a lot of potential. Uh, Nain Golan, uh, or Nain Golan, however you want to pronounce it, is one. Uh, the kind of the... Roma's warrior and a man who is uh, again has been coveted by a lot of clubs around Europe um, you've got uh, Fellaini who Jesus Christ imagine that man that plays the way he does uh, actually got into this squad but I suppose every squad needs an absolute thug uh, Dem- speaking of thugs uh, Dembele <laughs> who uh, <laughs> nearly uh, who will be coming to this tournament with uh well, I suppose uh, Diego Costa's eyeball will be coming to the tournament on the end of Musa Dembele's thumb. Uh, Axel, Axel Witzel, uh, who for a while I used to describe Axel Witzel uh, uh, to my friends who had never heard of him as, he's kind of like Maron Fellaini if he was good. Uh, yeah, that's ca- a fair shout. Yeah, kind of, but is another guy who hasn't lived up to his potential. Uh, the I'm, 
I went for a quite obscene amount of money to Zenit when they they bought him and Hulk forty million euros. Window forty million euros like, between the two of them, they were like a hundred mil euros. It's crazy. Uh, Just a maddening amount of money. Yeah, uh, Kevin De Bruyne is probably the guy I think who um, could light up Belgium's chances at this tournament. Um, and I, I say think... this, I say this only because. Um, as far as uh, effort goes, uh, Aiden Hazard played for precisely 45 minutes this season. Uh, and that was. The I, second... I disagree. This Aiden Hazard guy that we signed in about March was unbelievable. Seriously, yeah. we signed this guy, Aiden Hazard, in March, <laughs> and he was fucking unreal. Two months this guy played for Chelsea. And yeah. I got to say, he, he's one for the future, in, guys. In that second half against, in that Spurs game, this is where I said uh, we were going to definitely be mentioning that game again when I saw him, uh, when I saw Belgium coming up. In that second, I said this, Mark, we were watching it together, weren't we? Yes, this is what I said was that like it was like when the second half started Aiden Hazard went oh, hold on I was the best player in the league last year that's right yeah and then proceeded to tear Spurs asunder uh, but I don't I, know I just mentioned that he was brought on at half time yeah yeah that's he like... didn't start that game yeah and after destroying I mean it's Bournemouth but he destroyed Bournemouth the week before yeah. and I was like oh hang about and then after the Bournemouth game guys proceeded to cut a promo on Spurs, they were like, "Oh, Eden, you know, like Chelsea seem to have recovered. Big game coming up next." And he's like, "Yeah, we absolutely don't want Spurs to win the league, and we're gonna play them as hard as we can at Stamford Bridge." And I was just like, "Hang on a second, you, you were a guy who, by all intents and purposes, people had forgotten you existed up until today, and now your moment is back in the spotlight, and you use it to cut a promo on Spurs." Every bad feeling that I had about him went out the window, and he became my favorite human <laughs> being of all time. Um, you also have uh, in that midfield uh, young Carrasco, who scored that goal in the Champions League final. Um, their front lineup uh, is something that, like their their main two strikers, um, Romelu Lukaku, who, like we have already said. Uh, had a fantastic season when you consider how bad the team that was around him was and Christian Benteke who had a phenomenally bad season even when you consider how bad the team around him was at times um, with the exception of uh, a couple of uh, sensational goals he scored this season Christian Benteke has been utterly dreadful um, the the one alternate option I see for Belgium up front that changes things up a bit is Batshuayi uh, who I think adds something else where I think like when they're both on form, Lukaku and Benteke are in some respects like for like. Um, Batshuayi is kind of that bit quicker, um, that bit more uh, kind of, yeah, just, just sharper in front of goal than the other two. Uh, and then Origi, who probably shouldn't get a look in uh, as far as I'm concerned anyway, because I've, I've not really been impressed by him when he's <sighs> for Liverpool. Origi offers a bit of a change. Like I, he's quick as well. He will stretch a defence and he will run in behind. I, I think he always makes very good runs. He just doesn't have the quality in front of goal. Do you know what he's very much like? He is a Belgian Danny Welbeck. That's a good comparison. He makes yep. a lot of runs, but he doesn't really know that you're supposed to score when you're a striker. <laughs> uh, yeah. Although Welbeck's going record for England is, is better than... Um, Divock Origi's scoring record for Belgium, I must say, but I'm not by any means defending Danny Welbeck. Uh, I will say for, for my hot take that uh, Kevin De Bruyne will probably make the sort of top 11 uh, of the tournament when whoever comes up with their top 11 squad on 
BBC or ITV. Yeah, he's uh, he could he has the potential to, but he's a guy who like he's an absolutely brilliant player. But sometimes when City have been waning this season and really could have used him to explode, he didn't. And that would be my concern is that when it comes down to the crunch for Belgium. Uh, it's going to be two players they're going to really need to create something from nothing and it's him and Hazard and I'm not I even though they're like like you said Mark the uh, most people's dark horses for the last couple of tournaments I just I'm at this point conditioned to believe they're just never going to deliver I think that um, I mean if you look at the squad the fact that Hazard is captain is almost a sort of sign of saying Mark Wilmots is just going look here's the responsibility of being captain this means we have to play you and you have to play well just please <laughs> do something because yeah he's an incredibly frustrating guy because I, I mean I don't want to sound biased obviously I'm you know a Chelsea fan as we've alluded to a few times now but if he were to play to his full potential I he's player of the tournament like to me like he has unlimited potential um with the exception of maybe Cristiano Ronaldo and and even and even he is like getting to the later years of his career now uh this this guy is the most naturally gifted footballer um in in the tournament at the moment like so maybe unfortunately he has that high of a ceiling an incredibly low floor as well. So he usually pitches somewhere around in the middle and you, you can't really tell what you're going to get with him. Um, De Bruyne, I think, is one of the best transitional football players I've ever seen. Uh, on a counter-attack, he is absolutely pitch perfect and that's where he looks at his best. But it's when a defence sits deep uh, against De Bruyne, I don't think he looks as comfortable because he's, he's very much... A kind of player he likes to make quick decisions and I think when he's given a little bit of extra time on the ball probably not showing off his best attributes so I think maybe if they're relying on Hazard um, to be the, the main creative spark it might not work that way and, and De Bruyne as well a bit too much time uh, on the ball and he's not particularly good and that, that would worry me really um, I think the midfield like the defensive midfield and, and Nangalan and, and Dembele is as is pitch perfect as you're going to get. And Vitzel as well, you can you can play in there. And, and Fellaini is bound to get sent off or do something horrific at some point, um, but may well intimidate people into just not going anywhere near him. Uh, although his new blonde uh, look may, may make him a little bit softer to, to, to the touch, perhaps. Uh Belgium have just got an embarrassment of riches and, and they just need to get them all firing on the right cylinder and get them all on the same page because otherwise they face uh, becoming a reputation of the new Holland in here's all these great players. They don't really gel together very well. Indeed. Moving on to Sweden, who finished third in their group, but advanced uh, through the playoffs. Uh, and they had five wins, two losses and three draws. Uh, this is their fifth time in the European Championships. Uh, they have drawn three of their last friendlies, uh, but they did beat Wales 3-0 at 
And uh, I think it's fair to say after them missing out on the 2014 World Cup, it's very good to see them back here, if only because of one Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who yeah. I think it's fair to say. With the tragic passing of Muhammad Ali, uh, Ibrahimovic is now the greatest sports entertainer currently working alive today. <laughs> uh, like, you want to talk about a one-man team? Um, this may be our strongest example of one in as much as like there are a couple of recognisable faces in here but the disparity between the star man and the rest of the team is possibly at its greatest uh, with the Swedish squad and that is obviously big Zlats soon it seems likely to be Manchester United's Zlatan Ibrahimovic um, oh no and I, I, I was saying on Twitter recently I didn't even think of factoring you into it the troll levels that Manchester United are going to reach next season with Jose Mourinho and Zlatan Ibrahimovic as part of the team is going to be absolutely tremendous and we are going to return to our position as the number one heels in English football. And I can't wait. Um, I, I, I can't disagree with that. I mean, there's nothing that we can tell you about Zlatan Ibrahimovic that he hasn't told you about himself yes. already. If yeah, if you don't know if Zlatan Ibrahimovic is a good football player, just ask him; he'll tell you. Yeah. Um, all, all you need to know is right. Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, guys. Yeah. Oh my god, he killed us. There like is... the guy is 34 years old, and he still looks to be like in the top three strikers in Europe, even at that age. Yeah. He is like, um, I always used to describe when he was at Manchester United, I always used to describe um, Dimitar Berbatov as like a minimalist Ibrahimovic. (laughs) As much as he was a guy who, for some parts of the game, doesn't appear to be doing a lot. And when he does something sensational, he does it in a manner that makes you think he's not even trying. Like, the the frequency with which Ibrahimovic scores freak acrobatic screamers uh, and this has been a, a case throughout his entire career there are very few better ways to spend a few minutes than looking up like top 30 Ibrahimovic goals on YouTube and like even going back to I like I first know him because I was one of these nerds the two leagues I used to always spout my knowledge of when I was a young teenager was the Dutch league and the Italian league and watching Zlatan tear it up week in and week out for Ajax was something special. Um, there's a very... Oh, I can't think... Was it um, was it Utrecht or Twente? I can't remember who it was. There's one particular goal. When you the think back hill. The one where he skins like the entire defence twice and just taps it in. Um, I, yeah, I, I know that one, but there's... More importantly, there's the the ball is sort of behind him and at an angle and he just like flicks a leg out backwards and it just flies in and he looks like he didn't even have to like stretch or anything like his leg came up of its own accord completely as a separate entity to his body and just smash the ball into the back of the net and you look at it all in one solid movement and you just think how the how the hell does a human being move that way he's a he's a guy who has scored goals and won titles wherever he's gone like it it took some doing that i believe the first season he was at um the first season in i think since he was back in sweden that he went without winning the league title in the country he was playing was when he was at Barcelona. 
<laughs> and Real Madrid won the title, which is absolutely sensational. Like he's played, he's one of very few players in modern times to have played for both uh, Inter and Juve AC. and AC. Um, like to have played for the holy trinity of Italian teams. Uh, and like, do, do you know what gets me, Jack? And I, I don't know, like, if you have like, because I have certainly always rated Ibrahimovic, and it seemed to have been until kind of v- almost right before he went to PSG, people were still insisting he was no good. Yeah, like he was that a was spoofer. the like that. That was the English um, thing. Oh no, because... no, no! It was uh, like over here in Ireland, Eamon Dunphy was on it as well that he was a spoofer, that he wasn't as good as people make him out to be. And I'm like, are you watching the same person? Yeah, he's um, he's outrageous. <laughs> I think anybody can see that. And yeah, I, there was that argument. Oh, he's a YouTube clips guy. Um, okay, uh, just maybe go onto uh, Wikipedia, have a look at his goal scoring record. Yeah. If you're not actually going to sit and watch him, which you should, if you're not going to give him the chance, which you absolutely should. Having seen him in person, I was disappointed by how fucking fantastic he <laughs> yeah. was on that night. Yeah. Can I? Uh, can you I should just go say, watch him. Yeah, as well, one of my favorite goals of all time, and I'm sorry, guys, but it is that goal. Oh no! It's against so... England. Yeah, I, just, I, just like it's the very definition of the the old football cliche of he had no right, he had no right. It no, was no absolutely... one has ever had the right to do that. I was very, I was in Stockholm like within about two weeks of that match afterwards, and the newspapers from the day after that match with him celebrating that goal were still in the windows of every news agent I walk past. That's how there was a national campaign at the time. It was kind of a it wasn't a massive thing, but a real grassroots campaign because you remember that was their wasn't that their first match in the new home national stadium. To yeah, get, I think to, so. to get it renamed the Zlatan Ibrahimovic stadium. I think it already is, isn't it? <laughs> and in fairness, that may have been a grassroots campaign he himself started. Um, but why don't why don't they just call Sweden Zlatan? Like why don't they just have done with it? It's <laughs> kind of similar. There's a there's a sort of z- at the start and then at the end. I mean, really. What are you right, now, before but, before this turns into the Ibrahimovic trivia yeah, show, which yeah. I think we should do at some point, the key question has to be asked. Even with Ibrahimovic, do Sweden get out of the group stages? I I think he single handedly can drag them out of the group. Um, there are a couple of uh, players uh, like uh, that people will have heard of. A guy who you want to talk about, one of the things I've mentioned a lot on this uh, show so far, is that people who had an awful lot of potential and never really amounted to a huge amount. John Guidetti, uh, formerly, oh, yeah, I of, mean, formerly of Manchester City and Celtic. Um, he, football manager signing yeah. um, a couple of years ago. You get this guy a football manager, he goes on and he's the greatest striker in the world. Yeah, like it, it's it's shocking to actually think it, it's been nearly five years since that season where he really burst onto the scene uh, on his loan at Feyenoord, scoring twenty and twenty three. Um, and I think like having gone back to City and not really gotten a place in there really stifled his development, and he's not really come back since. Um, but there's a couple of people um, like their midfield is reasonably decent. Like the evergreen Seb Larson is still there. Um, I Pop- love Seb Larson, by oh, the way. I love him. You I- know he. He's he's one of those guys that, you know, is your sort of bring your lunch pail to work, hard working kind of guys in the midfield. He, he'll never stop running. He's got really exceptional uh, right foot on dead balls. 
and I just I, he never complains. He always just yeah. gets on with the game, and I and, there's nothing bad to say about Larson. And uh, before before I uh, I finish up uh, talking about Sweden, um, also mentions to go in for uh, Pontus Vernbloom, who the Guardian describe as the Swedish Lee Catermole, which is an incredibly <laughs> backhanded compliment. Uh, I because... think it's quite accurate, though. Have you seen? Yeah. Oh, I have. Uh, and uh, I just want to say, absolutely sensational that Kim Chalstrom is still in the Sweden squad. I, l- I loved a bit of Kim Chalstrom back in my day. I think Kim Chalstrom, the fact that, I mean, obviously campaigning for Arsenal's greatest ever signing, by the way. Uh, it's it's quite possible that that is a legit statement to have made. Um, he didn't, I think he played... I'd say conservatively three or four games for Arsenal, and he was like their big January signing. Uh, and then he didn't turn out for them any more than that. And he's managed to find himself back in fitness and back in a major tournament for Sweden. Again, he's another player who could well be 74 years old, um, and he's still going. So fair play to you, Kim Shellstrom. I hate that you've been given the number nine as a midfielder, but I, I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing you. Um, is there anything else we no. really need to say? No? no. Okay. Watch for Zlatan. Uh, yes. Uh, there's a guy called Zlatan. You should, Just you should remember that Zlatan doesn't score lucky goals. Goals are lucky to be scored by Zlatan. Yes. Oh, by the way, um, Sweden's manager, when they were, he was asked about their, their chances in the tournament, and here's what he said. This is the first sentence of what he said. Ibrahimovic is our match winner, our captain, our only world-class player, dot, dot, dot. But we need to be a unit. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like off camera somewhere, Zlatan's publicist was angrily pointing his finger at that manager going, How dare you mention Zlatan. other players? Yes. There is no unit. There is only Zlatan. <laughs> oh, dear. Moving next on to Italy, who uh, had a very, very disappointing uh, yeah. 2014 World Cup campaign. I... Sorry, Dave. Are you going to say that? No, I'd like to. T- I'd like to take the lead on Italy here. Whenever you're, whenever you're done with your thing. Sorry, I thought you were done. No, no, no. I was just going to say that they won seven games, uh, drew three, but yeah, very much like Spain, just had a very disappointing World Cup. Have uh, kind of somewhat rebounded, but uh, I still feel that they are not quite the team that they once were. Yeah, I've got um, hot takes on Italy as well. Go yeah. first, Dave. Okay, um, I'm going to come up. I, I'm going to uh, run the team uh, from goalkeeper to, to centre forward, as I've been doing so far. But the one thing I'd like to say as a start, as kind of like uh, an umbrella thing for uh, the whole Italy squad, the phrase disappointing comes to mind. And I would also venture to guess, and we will get into it once I get to the actual contents of this part of the field, but I do think this is probably the weakest Italian midfield in my living memory at a major tournament. Uh, And we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, Goalkeeper, there's no point in even talking about the other two because Gianluigi Buffon is the best goalkeeper of my entire lifetime, will be playing number one for... Italy there is no ifs and or buts about it unless his back gives out again he is still absolutely sensational and oh. it's going to be a very very sad day when he eventually retires because he will probably be the last player I remember playing when I started to be obsessed with football uh, that will have retired any man that can get away with wearing a neckerchief style scarf while oh, the, playing the football yeah, but it wasn't, was it? It was a little bit jaunty, a yeah. little bit cheekier He's than got... a snood. It wasn't a Tevez. It was very much a catalogue model 
page 67 he has a, silk he has 157 caps in goals for italy and not bad is absolutely the bedrock of anything they do he is still unbelievable to watch and I, I just an absolute like one of those guys like i think we said uh jack in a chat we had over the weekend that we're in a phase of football and maybe it's partly because of the view that uh, they must be professional athletes at all time um, that Buffon is one of the last of this generation from the 90s who are like these near mythical figures that you can very much easily imagine yourself telling like your grandkids about years and years from now uh, much in the same way that like a Lev Yashin is talked about by very very old people now you know someone like that yeah or um, Gordon Banks yeah something like that uh, the defence for uh, Italy it's not bad Matteo Darmian, who Ooh. I think had an injury-plagued season at United, but uh, very much is a quality part of that Italy squad when he is fit and had uh, was kind of their one beacon of hope at that World Cup uh, in, the, in the back line. Uh, Ogbonna is a guy who is at West Ham now, who is a guy who I remember hearing of him as being like the next big thing in uh, the Italian defence, and I have not seen it from him yet uh not he's Fair. not really he's not really lived up to that barziali is a kind of just reliable figure in that squad who will feature at some point uh bonucci as well probably fits under that same thing and you're talking about your other representative here from juve uh the imperial giorgio chiellini chiellini who i think is probably the most efficient thug in world football um his, yeah, te- his, his shoulder hurt Suarez's teeth that it, one time. Indeed. He is in the mould of very much like uh, one of my favourite United players uh, of, of his day. Uh, Vidic is just a man who you would never fancy taking on in a fight, who you would never want to be a striker running at. Uh, a man who is known for a physical challenge or two. And as the Guardian points out, like he is... He is considered a very rough player, but at the same time, he's played 82 times for Italy and never been sent off, which is a lovely stat. Um, The midfield, as I said, I think it's one of the weaker midfields uh, I've ever seen an Italy team field for a major tournament. The two standouts, though, in there are the the permanent figure in midfield of Daniela De Rossi, who I, I, I have always had a soft spot for. Um, as a man who very much uh, one of the last of his um, one of the last of those kind of guys who's a, a one club man uh, yeah. he's a co- he's hard as coffin nails and he's a guy who he very much had the opportunity to go to I know we United were sniffing around him for a long time the likes of Real Madrid a lot of the big clubs in Europe sniffed around him and even though he has said at times that maybe he should have gone on one of those offers he stayed with Roma and that is in this day and age very very commendable and um, the other guy who I think stands out speaking of Roma is Florenzi who I have seen a little bit of this season and I think uh, adds uh, a dimension to that Italian midfield that we're not getting from any of the other people at the tournament. And he could be kind of the, kind of like uh, Darmian was in the last World Cup, could be the Italian player people are talking about uh, coming out of the tournament, if no one else. Uh, like that midfield also has Thiago Mata in it, who I'm not, uh, I'm not like. <laughs> I'm not massively jazzed on, to be honest. Uh, he's not a very fast player. Um, 
And it's definitely a midfield overall, but it's definitely missing the calming influence of like a Pirlo or someone uh, like a kind of just an an enigmatic figure. I think Rossi is De Rossi is the guy who's going to lead them into battle, and I think he's a great kind of figurehead. But there is no sensational creative force in midfield that I can necessarily point to, unless you're a big Jacarini fan. Um, no Paolo, no buy. The the forward line, uh, the story of that is once again it's a lot of potential and not a huge amount of delivery. Three guys right here in the forward line that I'm looking at that I had very very high hopes for, and still like they're all young enough that they still could very much come good. Uh, Stephen L. Sharoy, who looked quite a player when he broke in at Milan and kind of went away for a while he's kind of he's gone to Roma now and is kind of he's on the rebuild and hopefully he can come back he'll be looking to impress at this tournament Lorenzo Insigni who kind of um, he was understudied the likes of Cavani and Lavezzi at Napoli and never really got his fair shake when they were all there and has started to kind of come back in now that he is playing um, I, I would like him to do well at this tournament. He's the kind of guy, he's only 25. Uh, this is the kind of uh, make or break international tournament, I think, for him if he wants to kind of uh, stake his claim uh, as being a mainstay in this squad. And the other guy, a man I have a massive soft spot for, is Chiro Immobile, uh, who was the top scorer for uh, in Syria in 2013-2014, which takes some doing sometimes, Uh and he was playing for Torino at the time, which is makes it even more exceptional. He's a guy who had that sensational season, but uh, he went to Dortmund. He's had a spell at Sevilla as well. And uh, partly because of uh, a rough adjustment period in those leagues, and also partly because of injuries that have kind of dogged in the last couple of years, he's not really... Um, kicked on to the next level that I really thought he was going to. Like, I had him paid the last World Cup as someone who might have actually kicked on and really um, uh, stolen some headlines for Italy, but he never really did. And I'm, ho- I'm hoping this is his chance to redeem himself. Like, he is only 26 as well, so he's a couple of years off his peak, um, but has only one goal so far for Italy. Um, I, I suppose the, the main man up front for them, uh, just finally, before I hand over to Jack, will be Graziano Pelle, the Southampton man, who, it is worth saying, is 30... So may not, if Italy kind of persists through this tournament and get to the latter stages, uh, fatigue may set in with the, who is, I think he is, um, yeah, he is the oldest of all their, they've brought seven forwards to the tournament. He is the oldest of them. So fatigue might play a role for him and the likes of Insigne or Chiro Mobile may end up leading the line as the competition goes on. But uh, he'll be the guy that uh, they'll be relying on up front throughout the group stages to try and fire them through. But uh, overall, I think that um, this is a very, very disappointing Italian side. Like when you think of Italy, you think you always think they're going to be in with a shot of winning the tournament. But I would be absolutely stunned if these guys are still in it by the semifinals. I disagree. Do you? I do. And I think that a lot of people are looking at the squad and thinking to themselves, oh, wow, you know, there's no, uh, they got none of that. But, but I, what I think 
is this is going to be a very open and very attacking Euros. And I think that it speaks a lot for a team that's able to defend well, but also able to capitalise and score goals. And, you know, I'm going to go front to back. And you mentioned Pella. He is essentially a big fucking tree. He is a man who exists up front and he will get balls pinged into him and he will be a handful. Uh, You've only got to look at what Peter Crouch did on the international stage for England to recognise that for some reason, tall and quite athletic strikers always tend to do well in football tournaments. And Graziano Pella, I think, is going to be no exception to that rule. And look, Italy... They don't have the creativity. They don't have the spark that they once had in the midfield. But what they do have is an incredibly functional midfield with De Rossi and Motta probably anchoring it. And you would imagine Ferenzi in behind the striker or maybe even Bernadeschi gets a, a shot and the young lad from Fiorentina. Their defence is brilliant. Chiellini yeah. and Bonucci, who are, and it has to be said, if you have a ba- uh, two central defenders who are used to playing with each other week in and week out and know each other's game and know that when one comes up, one drops in, and they're very, very good. And I think that Italy, they're not necessarily going to sparkle or they're not going to be the team that people love watching play, but the, the functionality of this Italian team is, is there. It's in the yeah. DNA of the country, the footballing history. Yeah. And, I, and I think for that reason... They are going to be the team that surprise a lot of people just because they're going to be defending a lot better than a lot of the other yeah. top teams. Look, I, I, like, I'm a big fan. I, like, I always root for Italy because going back to the days of, I, I think, thanks to James Richardson, I've always been a big fan of my Serie A action. So oh, I'm, I'm, I'm always going to have a soft spot for an Italian team. But my problem is, and I completely agree with your point about the defence and their solidity back there. Uh, because I think like if I'm building a defensive spine to a team there are few players I would have higher on my list than Gianluigi Buffon in goals and Giorgio Chiellini as my uh, as the heart of my defense my problem comes from when I look at this team on paper and I see where is the creativity coming from I see some people in midfield who are going to be great at congesting play and stopping the ball getting far past them, and that's your Daniela De Rossi and your Thiago Matas. And I'm seeing a couple of people in the forward line who are going to make decent blind runs, but maybe not get it into the box. Maybe do a good, like kind of like a Danny Welbeck, like we were saying earlier on, where they're going to run and either fall down or knock the ball out for a throw-in, and that's Kandreva and El Shirawi. Um but my problem comes from like yes i don't think they're going to concede a lot of goals in this tournament it would be exceptional for an italian team to start shipping goals left right and center my problem is i don't see where the goals are coming from the goals are gonna be they're gonna be ugly they're gonna yeah. be set well, pieces that's the thing. is it is it they're literally gonna, that is it, is it that de rossi is going to get the ball and just put his laces through it from 40 yards and hope it hits off Pella's face and goes in. Yeah. I, I mean, if you look at the way that they've been playing, um, and, and specifically, they only let in seven goals in 10 in the qualifiers. They were unbeaten in, in, a, in a little thing that contained Croatia and Norway, who are, I think are quite a good team as well. The, they are very much um, 
they 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 take their chances they they capitalize on the few opportunities that they're given and they are digging in and they are grinding out and i think that that is exactly what they're going to do in this tournament and i think that not many people are going to pick italy i I think they're a very unfashionable pick um for the first time in a long time you would have to say like there's none of the old favorites in there like that that get the blood racing polo was probably kind of the last one of those guys uh but still like this is a this is a this is a team that are gonna really be insanely difficult to break down and and may well bore a lot of people and may well take the full extent of extra time and penalties to get through a couple of the games once they get through the group stage which i absolutely think they will even though this is a pretty tricky group so you know don't put any hope on enjoying watching italy but pella up front long balls into him whoever's going to be in behind maybe even zaza um feeding off him are going to be the ones that are going to make the difference and they're going to capitalize on those set plays and you know that Chiellini and Bonucci aren't just excellent defenders that they are also threats from corners they are muscular they are difficult to mark and Italy will nick goals here and now where they can I mean I'll say this that uh, Italy scored as many goals as Northern Ireland in the qualifying campaign Um, but definitely if you yeah if you want to take the mantra of uh, Italy doing a Greece. Uh, I mean, obviously, this Italian squad is better than any Greek squad could ever possibly hope to be. Are so, you, uh, how dare you dis Karasteus in that moment? <laughs> Look, Stelios Giannakopoulos was a glorious man. Um, but from from what you said there, I can see that um, Italy could get themselves out of the group stages within this group. And then, yeah, I mean, obviously, when it comes this, to the elimination rounds, yeah, anyone I, can get through. So. I think what we can all agree on is that more so than most tournaments in living memory, this is going to be the biggest struggle for an Italian squad to get it to advanced stages in a tournament. I think they're going to be just fine. And I think Conta uh, is going to have a point to prove as well. I think the fact that everybody knows that this is going to be his last tournament and that he has a pretty damn great relationship with all of those players. I think they're going to want to go out on a high and and I think that they are going to put everything they can in for the man because that they all rally behind the guy that Conta's very, very well respected. If you hear what all of the players have come out and said about him. So, you know, okay, we'll happy, see. Yeah, happy to be proven wrong on that one because I do love Italy. Forza Italian okay. and all that. So, moving on, finally, uh, running off this group is your boys, Dave. It's the Republic of Ireland. Yeah! Uh, yeah. With 18 points. How long have you had that queued up, Jack? <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> they advanced through the playoffs um, by beating Bosnia. Uh, they finished third in the group on 18 points. They had five wins, three draws, and two losses. Uh, their last couple of games... They you might as well just stop, Mark, until this is done. <laughs> drew against Holland and lost to Belarus. Must go. <laughs> David, talking about your boys. If you don't have a tear in your eye, you have no soul. Okay, um, yeah, the story of Ireland uh, in qualifying was... Um, it's kind of the story of the Republic of Ireland is absolutely internal performances against weak teams and suddenly we look like world beaters against the top teams um, 
I have rarely been more proud of an Irish team than that performance against Germany. And I know a little bit of it is down to Germany really, really underestimating the Irish team. Um, but you want to talk about a, a buzzword for, for that Jack has been using throughout the, the analysis of some of the teams here. You want to talk about a functional team. A team that is made up of a lot of players who um, aren't necessarily... Uh, lightning quick or the most skillful players in the world but players that come in and can be trusted in an Ireland shirt to do a, a 7 out of 10 performance uh, uh, game in game out uh, Ireland are your boys here um, the the kind of the, the, the goalkeepers like Shea Given is the mainstay in there but is unlikely to be our man going forward uh, Darren Randolph from West Ham is probably our goalkeeper for this tournament and again, he's a guy who he's not the player Shea Given was in his pomp, but he is very solid. Uh, he's not going to be like a, someone like a, a Simon Mignolet, who we spoke of earlier, who is going to flap at a ball that comes into him. He's very cool and collected under pressure. Um, the defense, you've got a, a nice mixture of uh, new faces and old. Uh, John O'Shea is still in there, ever present in that squad as kind of um, our vice captain and a guy who very much um, can help motivate a team. Like, let's not forget, we beat Germany at home, but we also we also drew with them away, which was incredible. And that goal was John O'Shea uh, equalizing in the very last minute of normal time against them. But there are a couple of like really decent players in there. Like I think most Premier League teams would be very lucky to have Seamus Coleman on his day as a very, very good right back or right midfielder, depending on where you want to put him. I think Kieran Clark is a guy who could very much do well if he could get away from the poison chalice that is Aston Villa. I think he has shown a decent bit about him that makes me think he could be a very, very solid central defender for a kind of mid to upper tier, like not kind of, say, the Europa League spots of um, uh, the Premier League. Um, and crucially, hasn't tweeted any pictures of cars this season. Very much, yes, yes, crucially. Um, Robbie Brady, who was a guy who uh, I know from back at his time at United um, and then later at Hull, he's at Norwich now. He's still only 24, which is absolutely mind-boggling to me. Um, but he kind of was a left winger in his time at United and now is kind of a left back and he's a guy who sometimes he's great as a driving force to get a, bo- a ball out of defence because sometimes we end up in situations where Ireland are camped out in their own half for a while and he's a guy who is more than willing to take the ball and just go hell for leather and run with it as fast as he can the problem with that was that the problem with that though is that it leaves me nervous that it leaves his flank exposed when he uh, kind of relies on his instincts as a left winger and comes too far forward. Uh, also an unsung hero of that back line is Richard Kyo, who at 29 years old has only featured in the uh, Ireland squad relatively recently under Martin O'Neill and has proven to be, again, a very, very functional defender. Not um, sensational by any stretch of the imagination, but definitely does a shift for us. Um the midfield um the midfield is kind of difficult because you've got a uh, possibly the most unglamorous footballer in the world glenn whelan uh <laughs> no there's a man in this squad who is the most unglamorous footballer in the world uh, and i hope you can acknowledge who that is when you get there he uh glenn whelan like if you could sum up the uh tony Poulos stoke 
in a man, it's Glenn Whelan. Um, Again, he... I disagree with a man that's <laughs> in this squad that sums yeah, up okay. so much better. Yeah, I, I think I know who you're on about, and there's a very similar figure that's coming up in the forward line soon. Uh, but Glenn Whelan is a man who I once described as looking like his own grandfather. He is a weather-beaten man. Uh, <laughs> but a guy who, like, I can't fault that he definitely, he's a guy who very much, when he's got the Ireland shirt on, does everything he can, tries his best. I don't think he's, by any stretch, uh, world-class. Uh, but he is, uh, again, functional is the word I keep coming back to. Uh, Aiden McGeady is just like... Um, How's this guy still fucking playing? I have no fucking idea. He's at, he's at Wednesday now. But Aiden McGeady is the classic example and like a much worse version of, like I keep saying about the likes of a Welbeck, who is a guy who will take the ball, he will run like the fucking clappers towards the corner flag and then immediately panic and knock the ball out for a throw-in. Um, he's a guy who has had like enormous promise like back in his days at Celtic. Um, people said he was going to kick on and become uh, like the likes of a Damien Duff and he's never gotten close to that I think Damien Duff was an um, an accomplished uh, incredible winger on his day who it's kind of mind-boggling that he actually was Irish The in, in as much as like the cultured way he played football Aidan McGeady is not that Aidan McGeady is a guy with a bit of pace and no ideas who I think has been tremendously overrated over the years um, I second all of that Damien Duff, watch how he played against Barcelona in 2005 for Chelsea. Damien, that guy tore them to shreds. The, the Damien Duff uh, kind of injury history is one of the most heartbreaking things in the world because he very much could have been part of a, an absolute dynasty at Chelsea. Um, yeah, I agree. Him, him and, and Robin. Robin, Robin oh, yeah. What a combination that, that, that is. That first Premier that League like winning team seasons. was sickening. Oh. It was. It was insane. There is not a single weak link in that team. Yeah. Uh, McLean and McCarthy are two players who feature on and off in the, the Irish midfield, who, again, on their day, can cause... By the way, by the way just fuck James McLean. I, seriously. <laughs> I hate James McLean. And not for the reason that all people think English people hate James McLean. Yeah. He is just an utterly hideous human being. Yeah. And he is... He, he has no common sense. He's just a complete weasel on the pitch in every single one of his actions and honestly i just hope that like really not like horrible things happen to him but like you know he drops his phone down the toilet or like he scuffs his shoe when he buys a new pair of shoes or like his barber sneezes and cuts a line down the middle of his hair just annoying things because that's how much he annoys me sorry tell me how you really feel jack yeah uh, the pair of the, the pair of McLean and McCarthy are guys. I put them in together because they are guys who I think, uh, uncharacteristically of uh, most of the the Irish midfielders, with the exception of the man I will move on to next, are two guys who will pick the ball and run at defenders and cause them a lot of headaches. And unlike Aidan McGeady, if they run at defenders and get past them, the two of them actually have ideas with what to do then. Whereas Aidan McGeady again will just panic and fall down. Um, yeah. J- particularly James McCarthy I think James McCarthy ha- still has he's only 25 still has an awful lot of potential um, as, a, as, a, as a midfielder um, the one guy who I want to single out though before I move on to the strikers as 
I think the most important player in the Irish team is Wes Houlihan. Houlihan, yay. I'm glad I was going to make the same point. Wes Houlihan, who it's unfortunate that he broke onto the scene uh, so late in his career at Norwich uh, in terms of like people actually taking awareness of him and didn't actually debut for Ireland until he was 31. Um, he is our Messi. He is our Snyder. He is our, num- he is our playmaker. He is, Steady now. He, but no, but he, that's what he is. Like, he is our equivalent. In a guy, he is the only one in that team. The only one. And I defy anybody to find someone else who will do this in that squad. He's the only one who can make something out of nothing. He is the guy who, out of all the squad, traditionally, when he doesn't start, that is one of the major criticisms of the Irish team. Is like, why does Wes Houlihan not play every minute for Ireland? And part of that is he's 30 fucking four years old. He is probably wise. It is probably wisest to introduce him about sixty minutes into a game when people are starting to tire, and he can pick a pass because he can pick a pass like no one's business. Um, he is the key to Ireland's performance at this tournament. Uh, he is the one who is going to unlock chances for the centre forwards. So hopefully he does play substantial amounts of most of those games. It's the only way we really stand a shot of creating something against some of the bigger teams. Um, the forward line. Daryl Murphy, who I have never really rated. Uh, so we will move immediately on. The man who I think Jack may have been talking about, John Walters, penalty expert. Yeah. Was Johnny it, Walters. Was it against you, uh, not you personally, Jack, but against Chelsea that he missed two penalties? Yeah, and he scored an own goal. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was probably the least prestigious day in his career. Um, but... Jonathan Waters is like, you know how like people describe things as average. Mm-hmm. Um, they they they're like, oh, that's so average. When it quite often isn't. It's quite often either shit or good, but not as good as you'd like it. Jonathan Waters is the definition of the word average. It's the Homer Simpson thing, where if you go to the dictionary and you look up average, there's a picture of Jonathan Waters' head right next to the word. He's just solid in every possible, like every game he plays, with the exception of of, of maybe that game that you've mentioned there. He is going to give you like six out of ten. He doesn't go higher than that. He doesn't go lower than that. He's just and and he's like perfectly kind of rectangular, like a a really low res old school Nintendo graphic from like the <laughs> fucking NES era, and it just it, even his head. It's kind of like a square block on top of a rectangle. He's not resolution-wise. He doesn't look like a normal human. But he's just everything about him. It's just I, I can't even stress it. But with all that said, I absolutely love John Waters. The fact that he has a football career and has continued to have a football career at the highest level in arguably the most competitive league in the world for so long fills my heart with joy and because for, if and you for, put and for, it, and for not a bad team either yeah if you can if you are john waters and you can play at stoke city for all these years and and relatively effectively then my just it makes my heart happy because it just goes to show that sometimes put in as much effort in as possible will get you somewhere and that is that is the john waters story right there um then as well we've got like uh the ever-present Robbie Keane who this is almost certainly his last tournament for Ireland 
but probably it will pro- still be playing 10 years from now probably will not uh start any games uh he's winding down his career that's for sure he's 35 um and has been even less effective uh, than usual in uh, recent years uh, I would suggest uh, possibly we may not see him at all unless we're desperate because there was a lot of talk around the Ireland camp that he is injured and is just basically being brought because he is the captain and we don't really have a fourth striker um, to come in instead of him uh, then the final player I want to mention in the squad, and I'm going to sit back and uh, listen to Jack for this, is uh, my main man scoring the winning goal against Germany, and that's Shane Long. Right, I hate Shane Long. <laughs> and, 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 and this is a compliment, right? This is a, a massive compliment. It may not sound like one, but the guy just never stops. Oh, my God. He's absolutely relentless in his pursuit of everything. You could have a centre-half, lay the ball back to a goalkeeper. He could be conservatively 40 yards away from this action and he will chase it down. Even if there is no chance whatsoever that he's ever going to make it to the goalkeeper in time for the ball, he will, he will run. He will start running and he will continue to run for the con- just the conservative endurance of the whole game. It, it, it drives me insane watching him because any time you make a defensive mistake, which Chelsea always seem to do when Shane Long is there, he immediately pounces and will absolutely punish you. Germany were too high in that game against Ireland, and Shane Long was there. He was running. You say he wasn't running particularly fast, but the fact that he was already running meant he was in the right place at the right time as usual. And like you mentioned Azil being in the right place at the right time and having that natural ability to be there. Um, Shane Long is the complete opposite the reason he's in the right place at the right time is because he never fucking stops moving around and chasing everything down he is a he's a terrier and he just will not stop and and it is so frustrating whenever Chelsea play against him because I just know he's going to score always seems to he just He's relentless, and and that's the biggest compliment I could possibly say. Is that every time I see his name, I get nervous, even more nervous than big players, because I'm like, oh no, this is one of those days where where we get turned over by fucking Southampton, and Shane Long scores two goals. Great. Shane Long is one of those players that it still amazes me that people are divided on whether he's actually good or not. Um, I think, like you said, he's just he's so tenacious. Um, yeah. And just so, like, he has, he definitely has, apart from being tenacious as well, he has a footballing brain about him. Is that not only does he know to keep running and keep putting defences under pressure, but he also knows where to run. Do you know what I mean? He picks runs very well, and I think part of why Jonathan Walters has looked so good in um, some aspects playing for Ireland is because Shane Long is the one that is tearing defenders away from him. Yeah, he makes so much space. It's it's unbelievable the amount of space that Shane Long can give you. And I'm so happy that he's ended up at Southampton, uh, where, like, I always thought he deserved to be at a bigger club than he was, you know? And I think Southampton is a great place for him to kind of, like, show, actually, you know, I can contribute and score goals to a solid Premier League outfit and not just be bouncing around the lower third of the Premier League table every year. Completely agree with you. Don't the thing I love about this squad is I look at this island squad and you know it's it's 
potentially not the most lovable in, in, in terms of like some of the characters that you've had in there over the years or some of the real great gritty island performances at tournaments. But don't you think that if Martin O'Neill had the option to sign players to his international team, like actually pay money, he would sign conservatively 20 of the 23 players that he's got playing yeah. for him yeah. to play Martin O'Neill style think, football. I think if I think about it, like the, the only thing, the only things that were really um, like missing to make it kind of like even across the board, I think um, a big loss for the Irish team that they still haven't recovered from is uh, Richard Dunn. Um, who was oh, yeah, an absolute beast? Like, there's still there's a there's a popular uh, like meme that went around Ireland at the time after that very 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 famous performance against Russia away, where they said some say he beat eleven Russians but half a face. After, <laughs> as as you recall, he got tackled, went out onto the running track at that pitch, and got his face all cut up by the, yeah. the running track, and he like single handedly kept the Russians out for ninety minutes. Um, a figure like that we're missing in that squad as much as John O'Shea is kind of like a, a famous figure in the squad he's not the player Richard Dunn was in his pomp um, and I think like again we've never really had um, the the midfield talisman we need since uh, the end of Roy Keane's career um, I think yeah like, but yeah, then proper, who has exactly has had a character but, like but, Roy Keane not yeah, this many is true. people but you know what I mean like it what Ireland what Ireland could really benefit from is an absolutely hard as nails centre midfielder who takes no shit and can motivate the squad and I think the closest you have to that is Glenn Whelan which is not saying all that much um, but this is a team where like on their day because I've seen it in person on their day are capable of beating any team but the real question for this tournament is with that squad will they have any of those days and I can't really be all that confident they couldn't be in a harder group if it's, they tried it's, it's a very very hard group speaking and that, and groups, I, yep let's get ourselves some uh, some predictions then okay cool uh, does someone else want to go first I'm go still... Mark we I'll, haven't I'll heard first. you speak for yeah. a while alright I'll, I'll go first uh, I am gonna give the uh, the victory in this group to Belgium, and then it's a toss up. But I'm gonna because I just the long reason in this tournament the happy I'll be. I'm gonna put Sweden at number two, big slats, and then I'll go Italy three, Ireland four. Fair play, Jack. Um. You're going to be shocked by this. I'm going Italy one in this group. Yeah, I could, I, I could see that. Not on necessarily nine points, but I could. Oh see... no, 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 no! But like, then I could also see Italy four <laughs> if things yeah, go. This yeah. is a pretty open group. Like, there's a number of predictions you can come up with, and they're all realistic scenarios. Yeah, well, uh, except for a... except for probably Ireland one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I again, no disrespect to Ireland. I, I think if they were in another group, I would genuinely give them more of a chance just because of the consistency of the majority of their team. But yeah, to me, it's Italy won, Belgium slightly flat to the sleep, deceive again, uh, and they come second. And I think Sweden come third. And um, I'm sorry, Dave, but yeah. Ireland, I, I can't 
I really can't see the. I can see them finishing above Sweden, maybe, yeah. um, but I, I can't see them getting in the top two, and, yeah. and oh, that sucks because. You know, I have a lot of Irish family, and yeah, well, I, I do hey, look, actively root for Ireland, as you hey, well look, know. We only need to finish third, but uh, the thing yeah, I'm probably. looking at is the big variable. I think that really depends on Ireland finishing isn't so much them putting in solid performances. It's does Zlatan show up for Sweden? Because if he doesn't, if he kind of if the pressure is too much, if the the level of suck that the rest of the team are at overwhelms how good he is. Ireland could nick third from them. And also, again, oh, like jumps. you said, the wildly unpredictable nature of what Italy are going to do in that tournament may well also. Like, I, the thing I'm very hazardous about with, you know, trying to predict how Ireland are going to do is that there is a habit, I kind of like the way there is with English media in England, to kind of optimistically go, well, I can see us getting a draw against X, you know, and then when you start playing that kind of math, then it gets a bit tricky. But I'm going to say that the group is going to be Belgium, Italy, and then I genuinely don't know. I think it's going to be close, but uh, just based on how absolutely shoddy they were once they finally got to the tournament four years ago, I, I can't... I, I can't confidently say Ireland won't finish fourth. I, I, I think Ireland's second game against Belgium, I think if Belgium, and for all intents and purposes, like they're going to have a tough as fuck game, the first game against Italy. I can see Belgium really being like confidence knocked and struggling and maybe Ireland nick a point out of that. And then like Belgium could go off against sweden and that's yeah. probably what i'm going to predict them to do but yeah i can see um i can see ireland really really putting up a tough challenge because if they nick a point off sweden as you just said and if they nick a point off belgium which again i think is possible then maybe that's how they put themselves in yeah. contention Look, put it this way they took like in qualifying they took four points out of six against the world champions so there's really no guessing from one game to the next how well ireland are going to do and for anyone saying that they're worried that, or not say worried, but uh, make the argument that Zlatan might not turn up for the nation of Sweden, do remember that Zlatan will definitely turn up for the nation of Zlatan, and that could be just as important. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is what they're called now. Yeah, so finally we make our way to Group F, and dear God, if you two fuckers make this go longer than, say, 20 minutes, I'm going to kill the pair of you. Challenge um, accepted. If only because <laughs> in this group... I've got 20 minutes on Austria. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, Group F consists of Austria, Hungary, Iceland, and Portugal. Um, and actually, you know what? Out of these four teams, you could make the argument that Portugal are the least interesting, but we'll get to them. Starting <coughs> off with Iceland, who are making their debuts for this uh, European Championship. Uh, they surprisingly uh, came second in their group, getting 20 points <coughs> with six wins, two draws, and two losses. Uh, arguably the biggest uh, you know, overachievers out of this entire uh, tournament, uh, considering Iceland has a, a population of about 300,000 people. Uh, but for them to get their way into this tournament is very, very impressive. And uh, they got a win over Greece in, in March, a 3-2 win. They lost to Norway uh, 3-2. And then, actually, how did they do tonight against Liechtenstein? BBC Sport, give me the answer. Really important game. Uh, nope, it's gone to tomorrow because we've been doing this for so long. So I don't know. But either way, Iceland, what do we think? Um, 
that Gilfie Sigurdsson is pretty good. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, my heart sings at the notion that Eider Johnson is in this squad. It was 4-0, by the way. And and it looks like Eider Johnson scored the last of the four goals against Liechtenstein. Come on, you Eider Johnson. You're goddamn right. In spite of the feelings... Uh, other United fans would have me believe I'm supposed to feel towards Chelsea. I have always loved Eilerga Johnson. How can you not? He's a beautiful man. Very likable. And let me tell you, it was one of the greatest moments of my life when I learned that both Gilfie, or not Gilfie, sorry, Eilerga Johnson and Emil Heskey had rocked up at Bolton. Yeah. Do you remember Eilerga Johnson's goal against Liverpool in the FA Cup? Which, I mean, ultimately Bolton went on to lose that game. Um, because of an absolute stunner from Coutinho, but just seeing the man like with with a with a headed finish to to put Bolton one 0 off against Liverpool, but brought a massive smile to my face. Well, yeah, apart, apart from... he, he's one of the coolest statistics in the history of international football, though. Ida Johnson, isn't it? He, he... Do you know what? Do you know the one I'm thinking of, Dave? Hit me. It's the fact that Ida Johnson made his debut for Iceland by replacing his father. Oh, lovely. Like, I mean, it's a kind of a, almost a hackneyed, um, cliched kind of fact now, but it just, that is absolutely like one of the, the most genuinely heartwarming moments in, in the history of football. And it's kind of at that stage, I think people will probably look at Iceland and thought, you know, like that moment's great, but is there ever really going to be a sort of a dawn for Icelandic football. And you know what? There has been. Um, they are very, very well organised and they have an extremely technical midfield. Like They they are a very good attacking force. And Gilfie Sigurdsson is ultimately the man that's leading that. Uh, but you look around and there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of players in there who are quietly sort of settling in some pretty good teams in Europe. You've got Alfred Fingerbarsen, He's at FC Augsburg, and he's pretty good in the in the Bundesliga. You've got um, Cole Bayern. Uh, this is where I miss up the uh, the pronunciation, but Sig Porson, who is nonce striker and has scored 19 goals in 37 appearances for his country up front, which is pretty damn impressive as well, as far as I'm concerned. Carrie Arneson, who is a kind of a rock in the midfield and is at Malmo and, and has been a good player for quite a few years now. Aaron Gunnarsson, again, another midfielder and the captain who's had Premier League experience and and playing for Cardiff. So there are some players in there. There are some decent guys in there. I was gutted that, you know, Herman Haridison, well, probably, again, is another player who's conservatively extremely old at this point, Uh, but uh, he's not in there anymore. So he was like my go-to Icelandic player before Eidegger Johnson came on the scene. Um, so I think it would have been cool to have him and Johnson in the same squad. But yeah, there, there's a lot of good players in there. I mean, Emil um, Halfredson, uh, he's played for Udinese for quite a while now and has, has got racked up 52 appearances. There's, there's, good, there's good players in this team, but they're kind of almost like not many people kind of talk about them. Uh, they're, they're the sort of guys that kind of very much the linchpins of their particular clubs, but not really impressing to the point like i mean sigurdsson is essentially their beckham uh and then there are a lot of other players in and around him who will do a job so i can't say that i'm expecting iceland to be uh 
like knock out and amazing at this tournament but if you look at the group that they're in which we're about to talk about it is a very real possibility that they could find themselves in the second round yeah i don't really have anything else to add to that mark uh no hungry i have nothing to say go Is that just your emotion at this point, or do you want to talk about the Hungarian this national just, football team? This is just, he's annoyed at how wrong he was about how brief he thought this show was going to be. There, there's also the genuine feelings of, I have nothing to say about Hungary, so I'm hoping you two have something to, to Well, I am Hungary right now, because we've been on this call for four hours. <laughs> um, and I have not had dinner yet, but uh, yeah. I have... Oh, that was a rookie mistake. I know, yeah. Apart from uh, Dudashak uh, from Bursaspor, uh, I'm not really familiar with a huge amount of players in this squad. He is oh, how can you forget Zoltan Gera? Oh, I don't forget Zoltan Gera, nor do I forget uh, Gabor Kirai. Uh, yes, who always used to wear the most candy-ass pair of jogging bottoms whenever he was in goal. <laughs> he was a bit of a journeyman in English football for a while, but I do, I do very much remember him. Um, the uh, yeah, the the hungry squad. Uh, it's cool to see them there because they are like when you if you read anything about your your history of uh, football, Hungary are one of those teams that keep coming up uh, early in association football as being one of the first uh, dominant squads that weren't England or uh, one of the the quote unquote home nations. Um, there's a there's a good mention of uh, for anyone who enjoys a, a history book. There's a good deal of mention about the effect, uh, the kind of the the uh, legacy Hungarian football has had on world football in Jonathan Wilson's excellent uh, inverting the pyramid, which is a great uh, little nerdy history book about the history of tactics in football. But uh, I don't really have all that much to add about the current Hungary squad. They're kind of uh, a team that have flown suitably under my radar. Would you like a, a, a fun fact about the current Hungary squad? I would love one. Okay, so Hungary, in the qualifying rounds, picked up 38 yellow cards, which is quite clearly the most yellow cards that any team picked up in qualifying. But they didn't have a single player sent off. Huh. That is a, that, that is a good one. In other words, they're a big bunch of fouling bastards, but they know when to stop. <laughs> they know their limits. They know their limits. Um, Tamas Prishkin probably the star man for them in qualifying um if you're a fan of watford fc hertfordshire's dominant football club which says an awful lot about our county in sport um he is somebody that will be familiar to you i think he played there for quite a few years and also had a few random loan spells out around various championship teams like preston ipswich qpr derby etc etc uh and has gone on to be like the main guy for slovan bratislava as of like the last year so i he's at a point in his career now where i think he's probably kind of found his level but his performances for hungary have been pretty good and he's the uh the sort of leading scorer of the guys that aren't um jujak uh, who's the captain and probably clearly the standout player uh, and wears the number seven 
uh, much probably like Ferenc Puskas did in his day to to bring it all the way back to those classic Hungary squads. Uh, and yeah, the best they've ever done. They got to the semi-finals in 1964 and the semi-finals in 1972, built off the back of that classic team that that turned up at Wembley once and whapped England 6-3. I think something along those lines. Yeah. Okay, so moving on. Uh, Austria, in their one appearance in 2008, were semi-finalists and had a very, very successful qualifying campaign as they would win Wait, the group. Wait, what? They went out in the group stage in 2008. Hang on a second. Let's just stay here. Do, 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 do. Austria. Well, now who's holding up the show, Mark, eh? Hey, hey. Oh, apologies. Sorry, I misread that. The hosts for that year do apologize. Uh, but they had a very successful qualifying campaign, winning their group on 28 points uh, with nine wins and one draw. Uh, they have, since then, uh, they've had a couple of losses in their friendlies and a couple of wins. They've been sort of uh, mixed. Uh, their last match a couple of days ago, they lost the Netherlands 2 0, which is not kind of good going into this tournament. Um, but considering the group they're in, I, I kind of peg Austria to at least becoming uh, winning or getting second uh, in their group. How do you feel about Austria? Um, I think they've got a, a couple of really solid players uh, in defence. Um, Premier League winner Christian Fuchs is, is No there. Fuchs given. Hashtag no Fuchs, no Fuchs, given, Fuchs given. Indeed. Uh, the man, uh, Jackie, to be the praise on, is doing quite a decent job as backup for Spurs. Kevin Vimmer is there. And a man who I rate very highly and will surely at some stage, uh, relatively soon I imagine, be uh, heading on somewhere else in Europe, uh, Alexander Dragovic uh, will be there. Still only 25 years old, but a very, very uh, accomplished looking defender on his day. Um, he's played for them. He's made quite a lot of appearances as well. He's 25 years old, 47 appearances for his country. It's, it's an achievement. Um, I quite like Sebastian Prodel as well. He's very up and down. He's very inconsistent, but he has all the physical tools and traits to make a really great centre-half in the Premier League, which is why he's kind of at Watford now. So I think he's kind of one to watch. Yeah, um, and then you've got in uh, midfield for them two guys who uh, are recognisable faces and are very good on their day, and that's uh, David Alaba from Munich and Marco Arnautovic, who in tandem with Jordan Shakiri has caused a couple of teams, Manchester City, uh, a lot of problems uh, last season in the Premier League. Yeah, um, have you ever seen um, on Sky Sports, they have uh, the fantasy football show, and it's got like Max Rushton and Paul Merson on it. I, I know of it, I, I don't think I've ever watched it. So they have a segment on there called the Two-Footed Corner Challenge. Right. Um, and basically the aim is to score from a corner without the ball bouncing and straight over the line. Um, with both feet um, and Marco Alnautovic uh, was one of the Stoke guys in there and he hit I think it was his first attempt with his right foot he took quite a few of his left but his first attempt with his right foot sw- he just swished it in and then he proceeded to like throw like his bill on the ground and he walked over and was pumping his fist shouting this is what they like this is what they like and I just it it it, I, in that moment, I fell in love with him. Like, this guy is absolutely hilarious, <laughs> and you could tell everyone was just falling about laughing. And yeah, they uh, the the chant in at Stoke for Arnie, 
Arnie, Arnie. And he is. He's uh, he's their Schwarzenegger. Uh, he's a hard man. And he's also a skillful winger. And it's very rare that you get the hybrid combination of those two types. A bit like a, a rare Pokemon that, that crosses over a few types that makes it super strong. That's for you, Mark. Fairy and Steel, perhaps. Uh, and then, yeah, up front, uh, it's Mark Yanko is the man. Basically. Yes, he is. 26 goals, 54 appearances. Another player for Basel. I feel like he's sort of in his 30s at this point, though. He must be. Um, so he's kind of been around the block a little bit. Um, but, yeah, he's, he's an extremely experienced international player. And I think that's going to count in spades for them. I, this is a good team. Um, this is the sort of um, the football hipsters dark horse, if you like. Uh, there are lots of people looking. I mean, David Alaba is basically everything to this team. Like, you know, he was just kind of a fullback at Bayern Munich, but you go watch him play for Austria. He does everything. He works his absolute ass to the bone for this team. He he will cover every single blade of grass in the midfield. He's their talisman, and uh, I I can't wait to watch him on an international stage. And I'm sure that Bayern Munich. If they are, if they're feeling like they want to part with him, are going to be quite happy with the way he plays in this tournament because I'm very sure that he's going to be their standout player by some considerable distance. Uh, and yeah, as you mentioned, absolutely sound defence, and that's what uh, kept them ticking over this season. And there's a lot of guys kind of around that sort of mid to late twenties age where they're all kind of peaking, you know. Uh, so this is a this is their chance to really make an impact on a major tournament. And finally, to round us off uh, on our six groups, uh, for Group F is Portugal, who had uh, uh, just a shambolic uh, World Cup uh, two years ago. Uh, their campaign for this tournament has been pretty underwhelming. I mean, they won the, the, the group; they got twenty-one points. They had seven wins. Uh, but there was a lot of 1-0 victories in there. Um, and they're not a team that are, I don't know, I feel like going to be kind of standouts even if they manage to kind of get far in, in the tournament. Um, yeah, what, what do you feel about Portugal? Because um, I'm i just underwhelmed with them with every major tournament. They're like the Wayne Rooney of a, an actual full football team. I would be inclined to both agree and disagree with you there. Um if this is a kind of the, the thing about Portugal, right? And um, the thing about Portugal is that there's so much focus, so much focus on Ronaldo, and every match, the the commentary, the hype is all about. You know, if Ronaldo plays well, the rest of them will play well, and you you got to think that like it's got to be incredibly frustrating for no matter how well you play as a Portuguese player that you are in the shadow of Ronaldo. Um, that despite the fact he's a sensational player, like um that he kind of overshadows the rest of the team but if this team can get on board with each other play together to their potential i can see them doing reasonably well in this tournament like you look at their defense and you've got uh jose fonte who i think is a very very solid and consistent player um, he's the player that uh liverpool should have signed he really is he really really is um, and you've I thought got... maybe they accidentally signed Lovren instead of Font, not realizing that the two were different guys. Uh, I I also I also think 
their centre half pairing might be runaway winners for biggest cunt pairing of the entire <laughs> tournament in Bruno Alves and known enemy of football Pepe. Um, there are going to be some tasty and snug challenges put on, put in on people during the tournament from the pair of them. I look forward to seeing everyone despise them. Um, Pepe is king of strong style. He really is. Uh, also, I want to put in uh, a cheeky bonus mention for it's again sensational that Ricardo Carvalho is in this team at, a, the, at the age of thirty-eight. Outfield player in the tournament and by some it. considerable and, distance, and he looks it. Um, I know. I was I was watching the other night England Portugal, and I thought I'd accidentally put Soccer Aid on. And I love Ricky. Look, don't get me wrong. He was an insanely great defender for Chelsea, and he he really really did us proud the years that he was there. Never had a bad word to say about the guy, but I mean, he really just can't believe he's still trotting out for Portugal. Look, Dave. Like, let me read this off to you. Right, Bruno Alves is thirty-four. Pepe is thirty-three. Jose Font thirty-two. Ricardo Carvalho thirty-eight. Would hey, that... look now, 30s are the new 20s, all right? Let me give me this. LSAU is also 32. Yeah. Is, is this worrying you yet as um, a Portuguese fan? They only have one other oh, defender uh, yeah. who's 24 years old, and the average age of their defenders, having just put it into Excel, is 33 and a half. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, where I think the potential for this squad comes in is not just the, the, the hard man centre-half pairing, where I think the actual the real potential for this squad comes in if they can get on song with each other is this midfield. Um the midfield that contains like a lot of players you see as being one of them who kind of had been coveted for a long time and let's just say he eventually took one offer that probably had a hell of a lot of zeros on it, and that's Joe Moutinho, who yeah. was a, a guy who could have had his pick of clubs. Yeah, uh, in Europe and ended up at Monaco uh, and there's probably a few tens of millions of reasons he uh, he went with Monaco and um, the fact that he gets to live in Saint-Tropez probably indeed. as well but you've also got in that midfield right so as well as that accomplished experienced player with it's worth saying 82 caps for his national team so that's that's enormous amount of experience coming in there and anchoring that midfield William Carvalho, who is, um, again, one of these very, very coveted midfielders. Um, He signed a new contract earlier this year at Lisbon, which is kind of amazing because one would have assumed this was the summer for him. He's 24, and he looks like a player who has kind of, in his holding midfield position, has um, wisdom beyond his years. He plays like a much older, much more cultured and experienced footballer than he necessarily is. And could I swear, um, I swear, Arsenal have been signing William Carvalho for about five years now. He himself has teased the move several times. Um, you've also got a, a trio of relatively young players uh, in uh, Danilo Pereira uh, from Porto, João Mario, who has again been linked with a lot of clubs around Europe, including uh, our clubs, Jack United and Chelsea. And yep. the man who just so recently secured uh, a massive move to Bayern Munich, and that's Renato Sanchez. And he could really be a man who 
if a certain prima donna up front for them doesn't show up like he sometimes doesn't at these tournaments Renato Sanchez could be a young man who they will look to for that spark um, but the, the forward line is basically you've got Ed Air in there who um, offers I suppose uh, something different if not particularly standout uh, up front but then you've got the big man the captain CR7 himself Ronaldo and the two men who are kind of like two guys who went to a uh, pretend your Ronaldo contest and didn't finish particularly high. Uh, and that's I was going to make that point. Yeah, I was going to make the same point. <laughs> that's Nani and Ricardo Caresma. And let me tell you, there are a few days as a football fan I've been more relieved by than the day we finally convinced someone to pay, to pay us money to take Nani off us. Yeah, it was uh, it was a touch of genius that back to sport in Lisbon. One of the most oh. one of the most frustrating players I have ever seen in my life. In as like how quickly within one game he would oscillate between a guy <laughs> who looks like he is a world beater and a guy who looks like he wasn't aware till moments before he got the ball that he had feet. <laughs> yeah, I I hear you on that. I I remember. Um, there was like he scored just an unbelievable goal against Chelsea a couple of years ago for Manchester United like where he ran down the right side jinked in and smashed it into the top corner from outside the box yeah, he's done it against a few and, teams he did one against Liverpool as well yeah yeah, but as you as you quite rightly said literally two minutes later he went to try and play a side foot pass and in, instead of it going sideways where it was intended to do it like it hit off his other foot went out for a throw in yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's just, it was maddening to watch. And then Ricardo Charisma as well, who was like the first guy I distinctly remember being tagged with. He's the next, next Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, and it seems that the weight of that expectation crushed him dead and he's never really even come within a... They might as well be playing different sports. Uh, that's how far away he is from living up to that promise. Uh, but it's probably his last tournament, really. He's 32. Yeah, I I'm surprised that he's still. I mean, he's kind of rebuilt his career in in recent years, because he, he you know he was at Porto and he was beginning to look like not a successor to Ronaldo because that's unfair pressure, but he was beginning to look like a particularly tidy footballer, uh, and he got a big money move to Inter. And it didn't work, and he ended up at Chelsea on loan, and it it didn't work, and then he kind of went to from bounced but Shiktas, and and then he was like out in the Far East, and it just it, it wasn't happening for him. But he went back to Porto, he went back to Portugal, and he rebuilt his career, uh, and he's he's really kind of come back into it. And I think through kind of hard work and the fact that he finally got it, I think when he was younger, he had a bit of that big time Charlie about him, but instead of being Ronaldo and actually having the uh, consistency to back it up, he just never really produced. And it wasn't until that he went back to Portugal and he went back to Porto that he started to show a little bit of the player that he could be again. Again, the consistency kind of wavers up and down, but I mentioned floors and ceilings earlier, and I feel like his floor went up. And even though his ceiling has very much come down from when he was younger and quicker, there is a more genuine, consistent performer there. And he went back to Besiktas this year again and, and arguably kind of showed him the player that he really could have been in the years that he was there before. So uh, I, I got a lot of respect for Ricardo Caresma, but not necessarily 
do I rate him that particularly highly anymore? And yeah, I, I look at this team and, and, and this is kind of another one-man team. It's it's kind of sad to say Portugal have always struggled with, with central strikers. Um, despite his goal against England a few years ago, I mean, Helda Pastiga was their number nine for quite a while. Yeah. And this is a guy that couldn't even really get in the mix at, at Tottenham. Uh, at a time that they didn't have a particularly consistent striker either. And this year, their kind of go-to guy is Adair, who uh, is pretty average, really. Not John Waters' average, where I like him, but just mm, that average that means slightly less than average and like kind of overrated a little bit. Bland. But Yeah, he is. He's bland. They don't really have too many players um with the exception of Renato Sanchez and and Joao Mario who are ex- exciting to me um in any other position than the Ronaldo position whatever position he really decides to take up on the pitch I think it's wherever um, he happens to be at that time it's Yeah exactly so and there's I mean that as I mentioned the average age of the squad must be seriously up there like there are a lot of players in their early 30s i'd say just looking down the ages now conservatively half of them are in their early 30s um so yeah it's gonna be a tough old slug for portugal but if you're gonna say anything positive it's that ronaldo is almost annoyingly consistent and has bagged another absolute sack full of goals this year and they've managed to find their way into a group which is nothing if not extremely winnable for Portugal if they could get Ronaldo the ball in front of goal and let him do his thing it's kind of it's now or never for him to properly perform at a major tournament Um, yeah and and I never really I never really liked the argument because you know are you you're not this if you don't do it at a major tournament or whatever because yeah. to me now as much as i love the world cup and the european championships i feel like the pinnacle of of kind of world football is champions league, the champions league. it is and yeah. it's it's kind of i know people will hate me probably for saying that but it's it's kind of difficult to to not say that really when all of the money that that's in the world of football at the moment is geared towards the Champions League, and you know he's just won it for the third time. So um, yeah, he's pretty bloody accomplished at this point, Ronaldo. So yeah, and there's a lot of nonsense around that because Messi had that with the World Cup, and because it's all always about the comparisons to people like Pele, for example, and it's like okay, yes, Pele did win the World Cup a bunch of times, but if you look at the squad that he was involved with that won those World Cups, it's like, it's not really a fair comparison. Um, It's, you know, like, uh, as much as uh, Ibrahimovic is a a world-class striker, you know, no one's exactly expecting him to win a World Cup with what makes up the Sweden squad, and I think that rule definitely applies for Portugal as well. Um, so, so people that make the argument that a player cannot be one of the greatest without having won a World Cup are, are being quite short-sighted when using comparisons to uh, other kind of world-class players like Maradona or Pele and not really taking into account like the squad they had behind them as well. Yeah, and then this is in a day where like not every game was televised. 
except the World Cups and the European Championships. So I think people from that kind of generation look back and, and those are their real memories of watching football growing up are these big major tournaments where these guys that are in these pretty decent squads do shine. Although saying that Maradona pretty much single-handedly dragged Argentina to a, to a World Cup win. Um, so he kind of does kind of go against the grain a little bit there. Box but the trend. Yeah, definitely. But but and 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 were he around now, he he would probably be on that messy like level. Uh, the guy was kind of unbelievable. But yeah, it shouldn't be the measuring stick for anybody really to be successful at an international tournament because the way that international football is valued has kind of swung the pendulum towards club now and you know that's just because of the amount of money and that it could swing back at some point but i don't see it in the near future that's for sure so finally the last thing to do is to organize these four teams into some kind of prediction uh jack i'm going to take the reins first uh okay the four teams did you say the four teams of this group right i'm gonna go with this is a really tough one i think like it's really difficult to judge this group um and this would be the one that i have the most trouble with i'm gonna go austria one because i'm very high on them as a team as a unit um portugal probably too because i just think that ronaldo will have enough to uh to carry them forward a little bit um iceland three and hungary four um and iceland i think will do enough to qualify for the next round in third place i would agree with jack except i will flip the top two and say portugal one austria two all right, uh, but then uh, I'm actually I, I put mine in beforehand, and I'm I have the exact same uh, lineup as Jack there. Uh, I do think Austria uh, have been pretty impressive throughout the qualifying, and yeah, yeah I, I I feel that I it could go either way. This is yeah, I think for, most open group out of the six. Yeah, for me, I think it's just a case of I can't in all good conscience bet against Ronaldo. No, that's that's absolutely fair enough. Uh, okay, there we go. That is all in there. Uh, the last thing for us to do is to come up with any dark horses, our top scorers, player of the tournaments, and actually, you know, the overall winner of okay. Euro 2016. Um, I, um, I'll i go first uh, because I kind of... I The one I was struggling with was dark horse all the way through, but I think I'm going to just take a stab at it. I, I, I was going to draw it between two, but I think I have a definitive one. So I'll go with my dark horse first. My dark horse is going to be Croatia. I think, like I argued at the time, I don't want to beleaguer the point for too long, but I think the potential for creativity in that midfield um, very much excites me, and I think they are a team that has enough quality elsewhere on the pitch about them that if that midfield can get together and harmonise, that I think they there are very few teams in the entire tournament they couldn't cause significant problems for. Um, then we've got winner, top scorer, and best player, and they are all kind of related to each other because I think the winner of the tournament will be France. I think the best player of the tournament will be Paul Pogba, and I think the top scorer will be Olivier Giroud. Oh dear! Yeah, 
I think I was picking, uh, I was trying to pick, uh, my whole thing was, I think it's going to be the French target man that starts more, and I think Deschamps slightly prefers Olivier Giroud. I think he's yeah. just going to be there. I think it's going to be a case of Griezmann or Martial, whichever the speedy striker that's paired with him, is going to do most of the work. And Giroud will be there just to just to tap it in or just for it to hit off him or something. Because Giroud, if nothing else, is a very good target man. He is a unit. I certainly rate him above Stefan Givash, that's for sure. Yeah. But uh, that's my, I think the top scorer of all those four, I think the top scorer for me is the, the biggest punt. But uh, I kind of, I look at that French squad and I go, they're going to score a lot of goals. And the man who's going to be on hand to tap anything scrappy in is probably going to be Giroud. So yeah, winner France, dark horse, Croatia, top scorer Giroud, best player, Paul Pogba. Okay, Jack. Right, so do you want a dark horse first? Yeah. I think I've already kind of established my dark horse. Um, Italy. Uh, no one's talking about them. Everyone seems to think they're going to have a very uh, average tournament after what their last tournament was. I I think people probably see them get into the second round, uh, but not much further than that. And I, I think they're going to shock people. I think they're going to scratch and claw their way to the semis. And once they're into the semis, that's it. They've got every bit of chance as everyone else, especially with what I do believe will be a very imperious defence. Next category. Top scorer. Top scorer. Um, I kind of... The guy I actually want to say, I feel like will be way too much of a homer pick. Um, so I'm going to kind of play it a little bit safe here. Um, I think, and say Thomas Muller. Um, but there's a very big part of me that wants to say Harry Kane. Because I don't think that this is going to be a tournament that's going to be particularly dominated by any one striker. And I can see England getting perhaps to the quarterfinals. And in that run to the quarterfinals, I can see Kane maybe scoring five goals. Um I can see him being the source of all of our goals, in fact. Uh, and and that that will probably, I reckon, at the end of the tournament, likely be enough to win the Golden Boot. Yeah, like I, that's part of what factored into my uh, punt on Giroud, is the fact that I think most of the goals for whoever gets the Golden Boot are going to come from the group stages. And I look at France, who are playing Albania, Romania and Switzerland. And yeah, I think it, there are goals to be had. It's a fair shout, although I think there's more of a even spread of who's likely to pick up those goals, whereas I think Harry Kane, if nothing, sometimes is just a bit of a ball hog up front and will take quite a few shots in a game. And you know what? I have no issues with that because more often than not, he will score. Um, so I'm thinking Harry Kane is is probably the answer I wanted to give, but I, I think Thomas Muller is a much more sensible answer. Uh, and so he's definitely going to be my guy for that one. Next one. Uh, player of the tournament. Yeah, player of the tournament. Ah, it's it's kind of difficult because you would want to lend it towards uh, a player who maybe goes on to win the tournament uh, or at very least gets to the final, like the slightly bizarre decision 
toward Leo Messi, the World Cup player of the tournament, when everybody who's anybody could see that James Rodriguez was quite clearly the best player in the World Cup in 2014. Um, So I'm going to take a stab at... uh, I'm kind of caught in two minds because Pogba is such an obvious answer. All right, okay. It, no, but it, no. There's a reason it's an obvious answer, yeah, Dave. Yeah, know, yeah. it, it, there's a, a, a very high percentage chance that it's going to be Paul Pogba as as the one. Um, uh, mm, yeah. Uh, you know what? My my other one is dependent on what I predict is going to be a pretty great tournament and this is a little bit of a an odd outside bet for this guy it is it's especially like dependent on him getting into the start in 11 but i think he probably will koke oh i think it's going to shock and be a very very efficient player for spain uh and i think he's going to score a couple goals set a couple goals up and i think it, if spain go deep in the tournament and i think they are going to go pretty deep in the tournament like if i had to pick my semi-finals right now if it could end up this way i probably would go france germany spain and then ugh, possibly an outside kind of bet with italy um my dark horse i, I see coke being at the heart of a lot of the good things that are going to happen for spain from the front line Last one. And then the uh, overall winner of the tournament. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, bef- between those four teams, Germany, France, Spain, and Italy, uh, they are... You could make a case for all of them. Well, I could make a case for Italy, and the rest of you guys could make a case for the other three. Um, so, I think... Yeah, you know what? And it, it's probably the kind of lesser of the three picking out for you guys but i reckon spain make a comeback they shock the world and they reclaim their european championship and become the first team to ever win it three times in a row just like they were the first team to win it two times in a row that's right i went there in world cup 2014 and my prediction was abysmal but you know what (laughs) i'm going back with spain because i i just look at that squad and i just can't Imagine how you have the confidence of all those like Real Madrid players coming off winning a Champions League. Sergio Ramos looking every bit the gladiatorial defender he always was. Fabregas opening doors in the midfield. Kogo behind the striker looking amazing. And Andre Iniesta, as Dave said, possibly his last Euros. He's going to want to go out in a high. Alvaro Morata, he want to put himself in the shop window. And David De Gea, just the absolute locked safe vault goalkeeper. I can't see spain uh not making minimum semi-finals and i i i think they're gonna win it i i just have a strange feeling about spain i had that feeling two years ago and it was completely wrong but i'm getting it again for spain all right um for me it, it's kind of hard to know exactly where this team sit as whether they would be classified as a dark horse or as a winner um, but I think if you go for them, uh, you're, you're kind of banking them more as a dark horse. But I'm going to go as England as a dark horse. Um, 
I can see them getting through the group stages. Like I, I can't see them having any trouble at least getting second. It's, from... the, it's the hope that kills you, Mark. Well, <laughs> I know I, I don't expect us to win anything. That's why I'm going for the dark horse. But there'll be just... goals. Definitely, I mean, they... it's impossible to look at that team and say there won't be goals, right? You would like to think so. <laughs> it's almost like it feels like in one of those in the movie version of our life. There's like a fast forward a month, and it's like England crash out with no goals scored. <laughs> yes, I mean that has... crash out. Yes, no goal score. <laughs> if we don't score any goals, Roy Hodgson not only deserves to be sacked, but deserves to be excommunicated from not just the country but the continent. And he should go live on a peninsula in Peru somewhere and consider and think about what he's done. And the, the thing is, as well, is um, went very the last there for a second. The... The last couple of tournaments, it's been that like our, our strikers haven't exactly been prolific. But I do feel that that Kane and Vardy, if given a chance, uh, and even like if Rashford gets on to be given a chance, like I can imagine them really stepping up to the plate. Um, and I, I feel that we might take the kind of Liverpool approach from a couple of years ago, where it was just we will try and score as many more as we can as you will put past us, which will no doubt happen. So yeah, I'll go with England's uh, kind of rank outsider to yeah. essentially win the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, top scorer it, it, for me is dependent on how far they get, but if they can at least get to the the next round, because uh, do take into account that the last Euros tournament, the the top scorer was actually shared between a whole bunch of different people because no one scored more than three goals in the entire. Torres won it. Torres won it because of the assists. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, there you go. Um, and... You laid off a, a sideways pass to one matter in, like, the 90th minute of that final. They beat at least 4-0. And, and that, like, sort of 10-minute stretch of him scoring that one goal and getting that extra assist gave him the golden boot. <laughs> Possibly maybe the most undeserved golden boot winner of any tournament. <laughs> and so, like, if they get through at least the next round, and considering that I think there's a few goals to be had in their group, I'm going to give it to Lewandowski if... Poland get out of the group stages and at least get like another game in them. Um, not saying that, shout. not saying that will happen, but like uh, in terms of that kind of prolific striker uh, within all the group stages, uh, he's the one I'm going to keep my eyes on the most. Uh, player of the tournament, I'm just going to play it safe and say Paul Pogba, just because France will get pretty far, uh, and uh, you know. Uh, there's so many different players that could potentially get this award, but um, literally all yeah. of them could potentially get it. Well, this is true. This is true. But in terms of who, yeah, we think might, for yeah. player of the tournament, Eider <laughs> uh, Johnson playing it safe with Pogba, and also in that regards, I'm going to go for France as the eventual winners as well. Um, so yeah, that is that. Um, okay, <laughs> we are pretty much here at the end. Ooh, Do we have any? What? kind of closing comments or thoughts one name round biggest bastard of the tournament pepe go done Mark. pepe pepe uh, surely 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 it's just called the pepe award it's the right? the, the entire center half line for the portuguese national team him and bruno alves as a tag team of bastards <laughs> that's a great name <laughs> what the tag team of it, do you know what the word bastard just sounds so much better coming out of Day's mouth though the union yeah, yeah. of the union of bastards <laughs> yeah. bastard. bastard express <laughs> yep there we go the rock and bastard express the new age bastards 
I'm pretty sure it's an ICW tag team. Uh, is anyone with Mr. Jack other than Pepe? <laughs> Sorry, I'm still laughing at New Age bastards. Um, I mean, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's Pepe, isn't it? <laughs> it's... Yeah, <laughs> enemy of football. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Okay. Well, we are at the end of this emotional journey. Uh, for anyone that's managed to get through the end of this to the end of this, I, I, I question your sanity as much as I question all of ours. I, uh, I, lo- I, would... I love how Mark does this on streams and on podcasts a lot where he gets through it and it's a good show. We're all feeling it's a good show and Mark can't just finish it without burying it somehow. <laughs> and burying anyone that would listen to yeah, it as well. How dare you? Because he always does this like, <laughs> we, we'll get like some decent views on a stream or we'll have a few people logged on and he'll still bury it by going for the one person that's still watching this. And I'm like, what the fuck, like? <laughs> But there you are. Just leave me alone. Jeez. We, we, we love you. Whoever's Promote the brands for the millions watching at home. And millions. Tens, at least. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for listening. And thank you very much to my co-hosts, Jack, Le- Jack Lazell and Dave Ryan, for helping uh, in this adventure. Uh, Lazell, have you got anything to promote? It's what we like to do. Well, I'm off to, to. I'm now off to register uh, a domain name and a Twitter handle for New Age Bastards, <laughs> um, possibly even uh, a, a OneHourTees.com little shop that I'm about to set up. Maybe something on Redbubble. Maybe an Etsy. Who knows uh, I, where I, I can spin this out to? I would buy like uh, a T-shirt that had like a police lineup with Bruno Alves and Pepe photoshopped in and, like, New Age Bastards done in, like, the NWO font across it. Yeah. Um, yeah, see, now I, I feel like I immediately need to run away. Um, the only thing I've got to promote is myself. <laughs> <laughs> I've just turned into Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Promote um, the brand Lazel. Go on. It's, it's at Jack Lazel on Twitter. I used to have a podcast. I used to have a band. Um, I used to be somewhat more interesting than I am now. Uh, but yeah, follow me at J-A-C-K-L-A-Y-Z-E-L-L, Ponzi French name on Twitter. See, Jack, you bury me, but I was there for the best moments of your life. Um, I, I, I think if you were, it'd be really awkward. Let's not delve oh, too far into that. I like the way he goes, you bury me, but basically then goes on to say, you are nothing without me. Don't forget that. <laughs> Do you know what, though, Dave? You know, he is legitimately right about one, one thing, though, because you were there with me when Chelsea beat Barcelona, or knocked Barcelona out of the Champions League, and it was 2-2, and Torres scored that goal where he broke away. I was away. there. I yep, was you, there. You were I there. Remember. I remember rolling around on the floor, grabbing at your leg like an absolute nutter. So fair enough. Hats off to you. More power to you. Dave Ryan, as my housemate, do you have anything to plug? Uh, I have to plug what has been breaking news since the uh, the podcast started. Firstly, that Martin O'Neill apparently calls someone a queer. <laughs> oh dear. Reports have emerged that O'Neill joked he had taken the coaches Steve Guppy and Steve Walford along to the Super Bowl of the United States, so people did not think he and Roy Keane were queers. Oh no. Oh no, no, no. So he's had to come out and apologise. Even though this follows up on a story where earlier on in the year he suggested ugly wives and girlfriends would not be allowed to the team hotel in France. <laughs> he asked specialist Martin O'Neill. Has Martin O'Neill just lost his damn mind? He's been, he's, been, he's been near Roy Keane too long. Yeah. 
Um, but uh, the other thing I do want to plug in earnest is that later on this week, uh, we are going to be putting up our E3 predictions show for A Link to the Cast, a very special time of year indeed, where we don't have to do much in the in the uh, the way of research. We just have to make wild, baseless uh, prognostications about what we think might happen at the at times most exciting, at times most interminably boring Ubisoft uh, time of year for video games. Uh, I got a hot prediction for you. I believe, and I, I've got no information to back this up, but they might be remaking Final Fantasy Twelve. <laughs> just you know, you know didn't hear you it from me. From. Don't know where you pulled that from. What we should do I is l- just just to troll Mark extra hard, Jack. You should come back on for the E three prediction show and make that one five hours long as well, and see if Mark goes completely insane. Oh no, yeah. no, I, I can do five hours of that. That's easy. It's not a problem at all. <laughs> yeah. I, okay, I mean. Cool. I, there's more I can say about predicting what EA will present than trying to talk about the Hungarian national football team, let's be fair. I believe there's going to be a FIFA 17, but, you know, there keep it under your hat. Keep anyway, it under your hat, guys. Mark, we'll let you wrap it up. This has gone on long enough. <laughs> so, yes, uh, from everybody here at A Link to the Cast, thank you very much for listening. Uh, do follow the brand at A Link to the Cast on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, we'll get this up as soon as you can before Friday. God knows how. I'll get uh, the first half up tomorrow, I think. You madman. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening. And uh, we will see you again soon. Bye now. Goodbye. Bye. to do it but 30,000 hearts were in mouths at that point and now Roy Keane you can always depend on him Duff in close attendance Keane is fouled Duff helping it on towards Finnan Finnan facing Cuckoo and a little cross in there and it's come through here McAteer See?